Astonishing Legends would like to thank Robinhood, Simply Safe, Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. At Astonishing Legends, we cover everything. Ghosts, ghouls, UFOs, cryptids, historical mysteries, and even the Old West. But around the holidays, we always try to find topics that are seasonal. This year, we thought we'd wrap 2018 with a two-part series on what is commonly known as the near-death experience. Unlike most of our topics that involve some minute part of humanity having a personal experience of some kind, the near-death experience is more common than one might think. Millions of people have reported them going back to the dawn of humanity. Some celebrities have even written books and songs about them. Television star Larry Hagman from I Dream of Jeannie and the long-running nighttime soap Dallas had an NDE that he wrote about extensively. The last song George Michael released before his death in 2016 was entitled White Light and was about a near-death experience he had in the throes of pneumonia in 2011. What does it mean to experience death and then return to tell the tale? Everyone that has done that will tell you that it changed their lives and their understanding of death forever. Like every unprovable personal experience, can those of us that haven't gone through an NDE ever understand what it really feels like? Ernest Hemingway went through a near-death experience during World War I that he actually wrote into his masterpiece, A Farewell to Arms. Listen to this excerpt from a magazine article entitled, A Portrait of Mr. Papa by Malcolm Cowley. It appeared in the January 10th, 1949 issue of Life. This quote is from page 96. The front was quiet on the night of July 8, 1918. Hemingway, then stationed at Fosalto di Piave, went forward to a listening post on the riverbank, 100 yards beyond the Italian trenches. A big Austrian trench mortar bomb, of the type that used to be called ash cans, exploded in the darkness. I died then, Hemingway told his friend Guy Hickok. I felt my soul or something coming right out of my body like you'd pull a silk handkerchief out of a pocket by one corner. It flew around and then came back and went in again and I wasn't dead anymore. What happened to Hemingway that day? What happens to any of us when we die? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Rich Haddam. Guys, I am so glad to finally be back. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on near-death experiences as we close out 2018. very relaxing. I'm trying to be relaxing because it's the end of the year. We should be relaxed going into this often tense holiday season for most of us. Speaking of which, who wants more spiked eggnog? Oh, please, sir. Please. <laughs> Wait, it's is Rich so... back? It, Rich it, is back. Oh, you guys, you have no idea, uh, those of you listening at home, how Christmassy it is here. It's been snowing all day. Gosh, I barely got in out of the storm. <laughs> 
fireplaces going. You guys really create a nice atmosphere. Oh, well, we, we just wanted yeah. to create that special Christmas feeling, end of year feeling. Happy holidays to those of you who don't celebrate Christmas, by the way. And happy oh. holidays yeah. to you guys, Forrest, and certainly to you, Scott. Thank you. We lifted Rich's ban on the studio just in time <laughs> to be here for this joyous occasion. I've been allowed back in. Man, this year has flown by. It I has, yeah. It. And, it, and actually the time between uh, when Rich was here last has really flown by. We don't see enough of him in town, although he lives here, but uh, we wanted to get him back in, and we have had actually a lot of requests to have him back in, surprisingly. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, yeah. thank goodness. Well, and it's funny. It seems like we talk, and we'll get onto something. It's like, oh, we should do an episode on that, and then months go by. Right. Yeah, and well. it's like, okay, and you guys are busy, then I get busy, yeah. but finally we've come together to discuss... Death. Death. <laughs> yeah. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Well, also, there's no time on the other side, as I've come to believe. Time is very plastic, so, but we're so glad to have you back, Rich. Before we get into the show, just quickly, I want to say, we want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. We did want to let you know that we did get the regular hoodies into the store, so if you head over there, we also got patches, finally. So if you're looking for some special Christmas thing for that special someone in your life that's a fan of the show, head on over there. We now have hoodies that have our normal colored logo on it, as opposed to the Halloween ones that are no longer being produced. And uh, we got to get some of that stuff to you, Rich. I, I know that you're... No, I did. I ordered the Halloween one. Oh, that's and then right. you guys so kindly... Comped you, it. You canceled my order. That's yes. the first information <laughs> I got. My order had been canceled. And I'm like, Jesus, they don't even want me to have the hoodie. <laughs> and, then, and then I found out that you were treating me to a hoodie. But I wanted to tell you that if you get further orders in the next couple of weeks, actually take my money because I'm buying these things as gifts. Okay. I've got a couple of people I'm going to get hoodies for. Okay. And I've got a couple of people I want to get some other stuff for. So okay. any, any orders that come in December, just let... Let them go through. Take my hard-earned money. You deserve it. Well, Aww, thank you. Thank That's you. so kind. And I, by the way, I would encourage everyone to order sooner than later, just because mm. of the pipeline, it takes a little while for things to get shipped out and everything. So just yes, each one is lovingly hand painted, no matter what it is. Yeah. Also, we have our own brand of eggnog, but that's not, uh, the R&D on that's not made it out of the studio yet. Yeah. In well, fact, we're... we're just drinking the alcoholic part of the nog, <laughs> not the egg. Look, uh, it's but... all part of the Christmas spirit. <laughs> we're getting into it. Just remember, though, folks, the secret to good family visits is do like we do here on the show and don't talk about politics. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Rich, reminder, don't bring up politics. <laughs> or don't bash on <laughs> anyone's religion either. Yeah, Rich. <laughs> And go easy on the cussing. <laughs> See, that just cost us $3.18 to have that removed. So. Yes. All right, Rich, before we get to the show tonight, I did want to talk a little bit about, because you have a lot of fans in our listener base, what have you been up to since you were last on the show? Well, most of the time I've been working on Titans. Um, okay. We concluded the writing and producing of season one in May, and then our writer's room for season two literally just started up this week. So we're, we're getting ready. If you're watching, the episode started airing on the DC Universe streaming network in October, and we're up to, I think, episode eight or nine, and then we'll get to the end of our season right before Christmas. I, Very you know, cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to act surprised, but I am obsessed with it. I gotta <laughs> it be is, honest. It I is am, so amazing. No, I'm a so excited. Fan. I really am. I Well, you know, first I was watching it as a courtesy so I could talk to you about it. You know, here you are in the blanket Fortiana. <laughs> the first How courtesy you've ever, ever extended exactly. me. Yeah, but I mean, I got into it. I'm in the middle of episode seven right now, and I watched those in a course of about two days at night when I'm like, should be going to sleep. And, is, is seven the one after the Jason Todd? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I'm halfway through that. 
I've got one more that I can get to right now, like you said, and then I think the last two are coming out in the next week or two. So. Yeah, you've got that one this week's, and then after this week's, which was nine, now eight, it's like two or three more. Yeah. I forget because the numbering of them changed a little bit. We restructured the season a little bit. Gotcha. So, so in my mind, it's the order we wrote them in, but I know that's not the oh, that's not the number of the episode as it airs. Well, so. I just, I want to tell listeners, if you're looking for this show, if you're a fan of Rich's work, this show is just, it's really amazing. He's one one of a very talented team on the show. You can find it on DC Universe, which is its own streaming app, which I downloaded and got, which has a free trial initially. And then you can, if you want to keep it up, you can keep going. But yeah. it's, I put it on my iPad and I've been watching it at night when I'm, like I said, you should, should be, be sleeping. sleeping. But it's fantastic. I'm thinking of getting it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're going to give away awesome. a uh, pirate code so you can get it for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if you uh, think you may not be into comic book stories it's so much more than that it is adult it's yeah. edgy yeah it's not it's, for the kids i will say yeah, that. oh yeah yeah uh, yes the <laughs> young kids unfortunately our kids can't watch it and they're excited they're like teen titans and we're like no no well teen that's is how not I, in the title guys that's how i came to it uh, from teen titans go which my son started watching was watching religiously and then i got into it. i was and it's a, that's a very well-written show animated show so I know all the characters. That's how I learned about them. Yeah. And then this is kind of the adult version of that. So I came into this already like knowing every, I was so excited to see everything in a different realm. Yeah. And also I have kind of an obsession with Raven. Yeah. Now you were telling me about this, which is really interesting because you were sort of, I, I wanted to read the text you sent me, which was kind of, <laughs> kind of hilarious. Like, like I kept thinking you were joking until the part in the text where you said, and I'm completely serious about this. Yeah. yeah. Let's but not it get had into to do that. with being like obsessed with, evil characters and being obsessed with evil, as you put it. Yeah, a little bit. Well, what I thought was so cool about Raven, and I guess it goes to my whole frame of mind, especially with all this Sally House stuff, like I've always been more willing to believe in dark power than light power. Now, I'm going through a little shift there, but I definitely was drawn to Raven even in Teen Titans Go. I was like, oh, she's the most powerful one. She's the coolest one. She can do whatever she wants. She doesn't need any help or whatever. And the way you guys have portrayed her is even more amazing on the Titan series. But I'm like, when's the next Raven scene? I just, you know. <laughs> that, that, that's so amazing because that character literally embodies these two sides. And mm -hmm. her existential question is, which one am I really? Yeah. And, you know, the show itself is, to me, very grounded and feels very real. So when the more genre elements come in, it's all the more fun. But seeing someone struggle with that isn't science fiction and it's not fantasy it's what we all struggle with what are we left to our own devices if you just you know let all the dust settle are we good or are we bad in whatever way we've come to understand those two things yeah and there's a paranormal angle to it oh yeah which is i will say expressed visually in the special effects which uh Shocked me. I kind of, whoa. Well, a lot of the episodes in this first season and sort of the arc of the first season is almost that of a horror movie. Yes. And a lot of the way we approach certain episodes and certain scenes draws upon that language filmically and on the page. And then and then we sort of shift over and then a following episode might feel very, oh, this is sort of action adventure. Right. And yeah. then right. this one's very suspenseful. And this one's... A, so we do kind of jump around tonally, but all within 
sort of the overarching storytelling of Raven and what these other characters who are sort of drawn into her orbit and Dick Grayson's orbit from various worlds and different lives. Why are they being drawn in and how is this association with Raven going to ultimately affect them and ultimately affect her? Yeah, I'm really into it. I'm That's like, amazing. I'm yeah. so glad. Okay, great. great. <laughs> yeah, and You've got the best episodes coming up. And the great thing is the finale is written by me all right so the last episode you see this season nice. is my episode oh that's so exciting yeah check out the dc universe app if you want that is that the only place to watch it Rick? yeah in america that's the only way you can watch it is to get the app in every territory on earth outside of america canada mexico and every other place it's uh distributed by netflix so you oh, can cool. get it if you have netflix Anywhere else, you can watch it through Netflix. Nice. Yeah. And it's released on the same kind of schedule on Netflix? I believe it is the exact okay. same schedule. All right, cool. For those of you who don't know exactly who Rich is, and we kind of put the cart before the horse a little bit, he's been on the show before. He is a friend of ours who was a screenwriter and television writer and a producer, as you've probably figured out by now. He did write or adapt the screenplay for The Mothman Prophecies from John Keel's book, which is one of our favorite movies, as anybody would know that listens to the show. And so we had you on to talk about that. He came on episode 72. We talked about the Mothman prophecies. That was back in May of 2017. Came back in uh, episode 73 to talk about Orfeo Angelucci, which yeah, was his was, idea. Right. The very next episode. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The very, that was a lot of fun. We had a blast there. Literally hits a little close to home being in Los Angeles, which you don't often hear about these kinds of stories. It's always like people think this happens on a farm somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and you can't research it. Like, no, sometimes it's the big city. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. I had fun with that episode. And then, uh, Episode 82, which we called the Haddam Files, where we were, I think we were a little high on our own supply. We had uh, <laughs> drinks <laughs> drinks and pizza, uh, and most people actually did not finish listening to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did, did we. Did we ever finish taping it? <laughs> exactly. But anyway, it's great to have you back. You are our Alec Baldwin. You're the recurring guest host. Um, you've had the <laughs> most honored. appearances on the show now. This is going to be your... I guess that would make this your yeah, fourth. Your fourth yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not bad, not bad. No. You get a bathrobe after six. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad I was brought on to the episode where you're dealing with near-death experiences because I'm not an expert, but I've been studying up for literally minutes. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, so you've really gone to the right guy. Yeah. You expressed that interest early on when we were talking with you that that is one of your hot button issues you're really interested in. Well, I had gotten to that point and it's funny because it kind of gets into what Scott went through with the Sally House, experiencing something that you felt you were involved with. I mean, that EVP that you recorded, you had the feeling it was speaking to you. Yeah. And and when people go through experiences, it's always extremely personal. And typically with the near-death experience, people come away feeling really great because typically the near-death experience is a very warm, an experience where they, they feel bathed in light and love and I come wish back you... with no fear of death. Exactly. And I'm like, that's the one I want. I, I don't want to be abducted into a spaceship with Whitley Strieber <laughs> and be you know examined by these emotionless gray aliens. I want the near-death experience. If you could bottle that, you'd be a billionaire because- yes. Everything you want in your life, if you're in a daily grind rut, it's better than uh, the best coffee you've ever had. It, you know what I'm saying? Because people that have gone through it, it's literally life-changing and all for the better, but not for everybody. I know. And that's the disturbing part. There's always that chance that you're going to spin the wheel and come up double zeros. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of tease this. I think the people that get the short end 
of the stick or the sharp end or the doo-doo end of the stick on these experiences maybe had an inkling that it wasn't going to go so well. I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with you on that. Okay. But it's always struck me as sort of this phenomenon is the last refuge of the secular scoundrel. (laughs) Yeah. Where you can still believe in heaven without going to church. It seems to be something that exists outside of you because everyone has these across the world, throughout time, the atheist, the true believer, the non-believer, the ignorant, the young, the old. Right. And they're bizarrely consistent. Yeah, that really points to the argument that it is not just inside your brain. Some people, researchers, as we'll see, think it is part of the brain's, let's say, hard drive, that it is the brain's interpretation of the universe that we experience. But the universe, I would say, is much more and outside of what the brain can experience. And that's the other argument we're going to get to. All right. Well, do we need to jump in and actually tell everyone what a near-death experience yeah, let's do it. is? Yes. But first, we have an update about the Sally House. Now, you've well, that's listened good, to this series, I right? kind of feel like I didn't get enough of the Sally House. <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know wanted... if 95 hours was enough. <laughs> uh, to be fair, you wanted a full 14 hours, not just the 13 and a half it turned out to be. And I am joking. I really <laughs> did think it was the absolute high watermark of this show from which you, you are really descending this week. Yeah, we should quit. <laughs> we should quit while we're ahead. But that was incredible. I mean, because you guys did everything that a sane person wants from an investigation. It affected you personally. And then you sat down and step-by-step step went through it all and investigated your own experiences. Right. I really commend you. That that was Every time I had a question, within a few minutes, you guys answered it. <laughs> that will definitely the be goal. the first time we've done that for any <laughs> listener. <That> was, <laughs> we get comments that we read, and we tried to answer those as best we could. You know, we don't have unlimited funds to take this to a university research team, but we do know people from there. And one of the people that we interviewed, Maria Miller, who's the director of tourism for Atchison, Kansas, and does a bunch of jobs there. She's become a friend of ours through the show, and she had an update. Scott, we did talk about this, didn't we, Uh, when we interviewed her, that she was giving a tour at the house, as she usually does. She opens up several of these locations for uh, journalists and private citizens. Anybody that wants to take a tour of the Sally House, she will facilitate that. And she had an object go missing off her person. Well, yeah, let's be specific about yeah. this. She had black tourmaline, which is... Uh, Ooh, this... I hear that's hard to cure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... It's a rock. And what it does is it aids in the removal of negative energies within a person or space. It will cleanse, purify, and transform dense energy into a lighter vibration. A popular metaphysical stone, black tourmaline is also great for grounding. It balances, harmonizes, and protects all of the chakras. Is this one of your new sponsors? <laughs> well, Black Tourmaline. I bought some of this, actually, after I got uh, He did. I, there, got, there's no joke. I'm not he, he actually uh, bought several stones. Three of which are in my pocket. Right now? Wow. Yeah. Oh. Wow. So you're not kidding around. I mean, this thing no. had an effect on you. Yeah. <laughs> The one that's a heart shape is is more of a talisman. This was given to me by my son. It's so more of a, like a, a G.I. Joe toy that but, comes yeah. with. Those all look totally different. Yeah, they are. And here's oh, the thing. I thought they were my, all supposed to be the same kind of rock. No, the black tourmaline, mine is missing. 
and I'm not sure where it went, but I think it just fell out of my pocket for a night when <laughs> I was taking thinking? my pants off. But wait a second, <laughs> but you lost your black tourmaline and she lost Yeah, her she lost hers before me. Right. I can't find Here, mine. Here's the story. So she texted us recently with an update because I- uh, She was giving a tour. She had it in her pocket. Yeah, did she it, mention that? In her? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it vanished- from her pocket while she was in the house. Right. So here's the story behind that. She said that uh, she was going to open up the house for an investigation team. She had a feeling that she was going to be entering the room that she does not like at that house. Gives her the collywobbles, as they say. And that's the main bedroom there in the house. Yeah, no, the is, nursery. Wait, is, is that not the nursery? No, not the, the nursery is the, the room I don't yeah. like. Yeah, that's, that's right. You don't like. Got it. That's, but a okay, lot of a lot of bad stuff has gone down in the master. And Tony Pickman talked about that in part one. Oh of yeah, the waking up yeah, there. That's where you saw the bacon monster. The, the bacon. Oh, monster. okay, right, 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 right. All over that house, there's different hot spots, I believe, and you pick your one that gives you the heebie-jeebies. And for Maria, it's the master bedroom, I believe. So she had a feeling that you know she was going to do the tour, open up the house. And that she was going to have to go in there and that maybe take a protective stone. And in this case, it was the black tourmaline. And here's my point about that. You may not believe in any of that stuff. It sounds uh, you know, a humbug to, you know, quote a popular phrase of the season. But why not? Why not have the insurance just in case maybe that stuff does work and you just want a peaceful night of sleep That's yeah, for I the rest it. of your life? Yeah. It doesn't harm anything. You don't have to adopt your beliefs. You don't have to sign up for a newsletter. Just take a little piece of black tourmaline and put it in your pocket. So guess what happened when she did this? It went missing from her pocket. And again, it's not where you laid it down somewhere on an end table at the Sally house. It was in her pocket and uh, just the one piece, I believe. And that's what she said about her story. Well, guess what? A couple of days ago, it showed up again in her shower at her house at her own house yeah and i love the fact that it's the shower because it's not a place where that would fall out of your pocket generally you yeah. know it's a weird thing and it's also the reverse of what happened to the pigments remember that story where they had moved out of the sally house and occasionally objects like a tv remote control or a pen would disappear from their house and show up at the Sally house, that but was, scorched. That was the scariest, weirdest detail. And yeah. the one where the, the phone would vanish and then they would start getting text messages with graphics that didn't exist in exactly. the vocabulary of the phone. Yeah. I mean, that is so good. Oh my <laughs> God, a, I want to use it's that. A, that's the great <laughs> spooky mystery horror film angle on it. But if you believe these stories, it happens. So that's an interesting update. It appeared again. And we were wondering, it's like, wow, is this thing going to show up again? Or is it going to end up in the dryer? You know, or you forgot no. it. And it makes sense. This doesn't make sense. It's the opposite of, again, showing up at the Sally house. This piece of Blackstone disappeared at the Sally house, ended up at her place. Also, she said that a little chip had been knocked off the top, that it wasn't totally in the same condition as when she lost it, which would go into things undergoing some kind of change, a little bit destructive, like the scorching of the remote and the pen of the Pikmins. Yeah. So, that, and that, it was gone that, a couple of weeks. I can't, I was trying yeah, to was find here oh, when it right. vanished yeah. and I can't find the original date because I can't remember if she texted or emailed me, but it's been at least three weeks or maybe four since it disappeared. So it wasn't just like Oh, it was gone. This she's taking a lot of showers. She would have seen it in there since <laughs> well, yeah, it went missing. Yeah, so 
it's a little weird now. And I don't know where mine went. I honestly, though, carrying three <laughs> rocks around in your pocket every day, it's a little bit tedious. Yeah. And when you get undressed at night, they can fall out on the floor or whatever. So it's in the same place I'm, where your son's it, it may have just gone under my up. bed, but yeah. I can't find my black tourmaline either. Well, as anyone who's seen the movie Mothman Prophecies knows, there's only one thing I carry in my pocket. Yeah. And that's chapstick. <laughs> and that is, and that goes missing all the time. <laughs> that is completely but, true. But you know what? You can just call Indrid Cold. He'll tell you right where it is. There and it he, is. And there he, he's got it. He's got it. The moisturizing kind. <laughs> you know, you try to put a little of yourself in these movies, yes, and I'm yeah. like, all right, that, that's what it's going to be. Yeah, I yeah. love it. I love it. But one thing it does prove and point back to is that the Sally House keeps on interacting. Yeah, whether you want it to or not. So now that I'm watching Rich's show, Titans, and finding myself even more into it than I expected I would be, I've decided I want my own secret identity. You realize the point of a secret identity is that, that well, you know, that it's a secret. So so maybe announcing that on the show. I've already come up with a name. Oh, all right. Well, uh, hit me with it. Robin Hood. <laughs> right. You know, that's already a dude. Uh, it's also an app. And on top of that, you've blown the whole secret part right out of the gate here. Yeah, but instead of the dude with the bow and arrow, my secret identity is that of a master investor. Mm. Which is where the aforementioned Robinhood app comes into play. Oh, I see. See, I'm joking around. But seriously, uh. I've always wanted to learn how to invest because like everyone, <laughs> I think I'd be good at it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Real super good. Then. Uh, well, yeah. I have the Robinhood investing app right here on my phone. It lets me buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. Robinhood works super hard to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy, which is good because I'm no Bruce Wayne. <laughs> no, you are not. You know, I installed it a few weeks ago, too, and my favorite thing about it is that it's not intimidating at all. It gives you the confidence to invest, especially if you've never done it before, like our good friend Scott here. Here's the thing. With Robinhood, you learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. You can discover new stocks and track favorite companies with your own personalized news feed and set up custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And on top of that, other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. It looks like I'm going to need a new super secret identity. <laughs> I'd go with noob. Robinhood is giving our listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at legends.robinhood.com. That's legends.robinhood.com. Legends.robinhood.com. Check it out today. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Margaret Emma. Now back to the show. What we're going to learn tonight with the near-death experience is that there does seem to be I wouldn't say rules, but there are patterns that have been observed by researchers and top-notch scientific people in the field that seem to happen and other things that do not seem to happen. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. What are these patterns that can be studied from this largely anecdotal, I guess, phenomenon? But you know what? It's also been recorded under pretty controlled circumstances. And we're going to look at those cases too, because it's not something that can be ignored and it affects all of us. Well, so let's right. talk about what the near-death experience is. All right. Well, tonight we will be pulling from a variety of sources, a lot of great books that Rich has brought and studied, some stuff that Scott has found on his own. And one of them though, that I was in tune with because I had to research it and make notes from is a lecture series from The Great Courses Plus, 
called Death, Dying, and the Afterlife, Lessons from World Cultures, taught by Professor Mark Berkson. We had done a uh, an ad on that, I think, at one point. A while back, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I just want to be clear to our audience, that's not a paid thing right there. This is actually one of our best sources for this information. So, oh, the, no, yeah. The, yeah, sorry, sorry. That, yeah, we're not doing an ad right now. I'm yeah. just saying that This is a like, good place to get this information. So much better than a web page of possibly spurious origin. What I'm saying is that these are professors in the top of their field. And what better place to pull information from than uh, one of these lecture series? So that's kind of what we did. It was right up this alley. And I knew one day we'd be looking at this topic. And that's what we're doing now. So some of these notes are going to be from Professor Mark Berkson's lecture, lecture number 22 from the series, which right, is there's... specifically on NDEs or the near-death experience. So just know that. And plus, uh, as we go along, we'll mention other sources that we'll have links to, and you can look it up yourself. But what is the near-death experience? What is an NDE? Well, Dr. Mario Beauregard defines NDEs as, quote, the vivid, realistic, and often deeply life-changing experiences of men, women, and children who have been physiologically or psychologically close to death. So I thought that was a good encapsulated definition of an NDE. Yeah, so that's a solid piece of information that actually came from Professor Berkson's series, Death, Dying, and the Afterlife. One of the other things that he talks about in that series is how a near-death experience is usually a personal experience that is connected to death or dying or the impending death process in some way. And he talks about how an experiencer can, can sometimes have a positive experience or a negative experience, which yeah. is something that <laughs> I actually wasn't really aware of, mm. or they can have something that feels kind of neutral. Well, in other words, they're having an experience and then they are coming back to life and yes. describing it. And so that's a second step. The description of the experience, you and I might both go to a basketball game. Right. And then after the basketball game, you will describe your experience and I will describe mine. Right. And they may be very different, even if we experience the exact same thing. Oh, of course. Yes. If neither team is one of your favorites or you just don't like basketball, but it was interesting and you come out of it, it's uh, going to be different than the person that had $1,000 on the game, yeah. I guarantee. <laughs> but let's talk about what some of those things are that people experience. Yeah, sure. A lot of people have probably heard, you know, at least one or two of these things when people describe having a near-death experience. Yeah, this but Richard, from... what, what I'll say is that uh, I'm the same way as I know what the term means. I've heard it before. I was not aware of the rules, I guess, or the definitions. Well, it's funny. It's, you know, in alien abductions, there is the core experience. And it's been broken down by people like David Jacobs and uh, and John Mack, where here's basically what happens. A person is taken from their bedroom. They find themselves on a craft. And there's five or six things. I think when I, when I was talking to Rob Christofferson, we've all had these conversations. You know, what, yeah, what yeah. is an alien abduction experience? Because they're not like all different from each other. And it's the same thing with the near-death experience. People talk about them, and over and over, certain things come up. Shall right. we hear a couple of them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because okay. you know what? That's how you're able to study these things. Dr. Bruce Grayson, and we'll talk about him in yes, a minute, yeah. I know that. He sort of mapped out a handful of these elements of a near-death experience that he's grouped into little subcategories. One is cognitive elements, an altered sense of time, an accelerated thought process, a life review, and what is called sudden understanding. Mm. Affective elements are feelings, feelings of peace, feelings of joy, feeling cosmic unity or a oneness with all things. 
and the feeling of being surrounded by light. Right. So we've heard of some of that stuff. Sure, oh, sure. People yeah. talking about, you know, being in the light or going to the light. Now we get to what he calls paranormal elements. And I'm not sure why he calls them that, but it would be the out of physical body experience, leaving your body, in other words. Senses are more vivid than usual, sight and sound. Feelings of ESP and visions of the future. So I guess that's pretty paranormal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then what he calls transcendental elements, which are experiencing another world, encountering beings, either human or non, mystical beings, and the sense of reaching a point of no return. Right. Sometimes they're given the choice. You know, you may continue into the world of the dead. Yeah. Or you may turn back. It's up to you. Right. Other people are told, nah, not your time. You're here, but it's not your time. Right. You have to go back. And a lot of times people are like, no, this feels so good. I yeah. don't want to go back. And it's like, but think about your kids. Think about, and they're like, yeah, I know. But <laughs> at a certain point, they're like, yeah, I guess I should go back. And then they go back and they rejoin their physical body. Some do, but just, you know, keeping in mind that we only- <laughs> The ones we hear about. Yeah, the ones we hear about. Because <laughs> if they decide not to go back- we got no update. No. <laughs> we got no update. And, well, until that voice comes yeah. through on EVP. Yeah. If, and, yeah, right. Unless you're Richard Dreyfus <laughs> and it's close encounters of the third kind, then you'll leave your family and willfully go on the abduction yeah. into the other world. You know, it's weird that you should say that. The point of no return, whenever I hear that phrase, I can't help but think navigationally. It reminded me of Flight 19 and how I thought that those guys got confused but you do wonder at some point when, you know, they thought they were going east and they were west of Florida or vice versa, but that maybe they made a choice to fly out to sea until they ran out of gas in the middle of the Atlantic. It's weird, just that point of no return thing and just like that decision and, and what that experience was like for them, you know? Well, you bring up decision, and this is something that I think about a lot in terms of alien abduction and also in terms of this. These experiences typically are related as being fairly passive. Things are happening to you. Right. And yet you do bring part of yourself to the creation of this experience. Yes. Yeah. If we are to understand how near-death experiences in India are different from near-death experiences in North America, you have to look at those and say, well, part of this has to do with the world this individual grew up in. And they're bringing that with them. And why wouldn't you? Yes, but also what's interesting, and I think goes to the argument that it is not something that is maybe about your brain's personal outlook and input of the world around you. There are universal experiential right. elements to this that go beyond culture and upbringing. And that's what's fascinating because, again, that goes to the argument that yeah, we all share the same brain, but it doesn't matter if you're Hindi, if you're Muslim, if you're Christian. There are elements and themes that happen to everyone, regardless of where you grew up. Well, yeah, and that always reminds, you know, I always think about the smile, how all of humanity yeah. smiles. There's that connection. Where does that come from? And some of these other experiences that Professor Bergson talked about, and this points to some of that stuff that a lot of people seem to do cross-culturally. If they're having a positive near-death experience, there's levitation, leaving the body, floating yeah, right, right. up towards the ceiling or higher and looking down on yourself. And also, like you said a second ago, Rich, feeling this overwhelming sense of love or light or you know being surrounded. That's the positive one. And then the negative one 
may have darkness, coldness, torture, dread, all of that kind of stuff, which is the same for all of humanity, regardless of your religious background. Yeah. Bad is bad. Good is good. And evil forces or entities working, torturing you, causing you severe pain and the positive experience having a premonition of something good, the bad experience having an omen of something bad. So there's a warning sometimes, not with all of them, but sometimes. But what's interesting is also part of this uh, realm of the definition, the dissolution of self, the physical body, whatever crap you're going on with in the real world, your physical world has been dissolved. And now you're somewhere else where those things may not matter. And it could be good. It could be bad. There is a way to think about this where if you posit, all right, we are spiritual entities temporarily inhabiting a physical body. Angels driving trucks. Ghost in the machine. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> I'm sorry, angels driving trucks, I have to go back. What is this? It's just kind of a theory about what you are. Your soul is operating, the body is the truck, and you're the non-corporeal. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Oh, angels that's kind of nice. yeah. a, a truck being a large, unwieldy physical thing. Yeah. And an angel being and that, a gossamer. Yeah, um, and it could be a headache, thing. you know? It needs a lot of maintenance, whatever, because that's what I thought about when yeah. I hear about these experiences, and people get out, and even though they just had a baby or... They have kids or they have all this stuff to live for, but they look down and they feel so unburdened from the body, from the truck. I don't have to worry about that anymore. All the stuff that goes with it is going away and I feel amazing. Well, you it's hear fascinating. About, yeah. And you hear about it all the time. There is a belief. I think we talked about it before that when you are between lives or when you are not in the physical, sometimes you are given the choice to incarnate. Yeah. And some people make that choice. In the paradigm of a near-death experience, you might think, well, why would anyone, if, if it's so burdensome to lumber around and these bodies were given, why would anyone choose that? But then you get into these unanswerable questions, which are like, well, why are any of us in bodies? Any, what is existence? Right. So right. even when you think you're explaining something, you can very quickly <laughs> lose track of your rope and be off in, in space. The thing about going into this less physical world is that you probably are using what you have from your human experience and the right. psychological archetypes we all live with to create a handhold to get you to a more long-term, less physical existence. So if what you need is a spirit guide right. or a bridge or a tunnel, you may, and your consciousness may provide you with those things so that you can make that transition. And then the less you need them, the less you have them. But in those first moments, you may need all that to get you into that next world. That is one of the big tenets of this is that it kind of gives you what you need, depending on the person you are and where you are at in your life. But if you strip all that away, the NDE is often an accepted and recognized part of the concept of an afterlife for many religious and transcendental belief systems. But if you strip that spiritual part away, just take a look at the neuroscience part of it, which is trying to be as objective as possible. And from Olaf Blanca's book, published in 2009, The Neurology of Consciousness, NDEs are considered by neuroscience research to be kind of essentially a subjective phenomenon resulting from, quote, disturbed bodily multisensory integration, unquote, that occurs during life-threatening events. 
And so this is science's approach. Like, let's just yeah, strip but, but, all that stuff away. This is kind of only what what's is happening. that? I have literally no idea what that means. Right. Disturbed you know what, bodily multisensory integration. You know what this reminds me of is, and because I've read about this a while back, I'm sure no one that's listening will be surprised, but I think you and I both for a while, it may have even been before we were doing the show, we were studying... Um, out-of-body experiences. Didn't we have a guide about how to, like, do and about Well, this? no. There's I, a book uh, about know, it. Yes, I did. I, it, it's <laughs> did you give me that book? I did. Yeah. Luis, Forrest has all the good yeah. books. And Luis Rich does, Spinero. too. I don't have yeah. any books. It is basically a work. <laughs> how to it's do real. it. Oh. Is that the Robert Monroe book? No, no, no. no. How to have an uh, out-of-body experience? No, Luis... Monero. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, you know, no, what? I we put you on a, the spot. I'm I know, sorry. We, but, but we have to, we have a section coming up here talking about specifically OBEs, out oh, of body experiences, oh, which is different, but connected. Oobies. Or it could be Oobies because out, you include the O. Yeah, that's up. what I'm saying. Oobies. Yeah, right. thing, the Oobie uh, brothers. Well, <laughs> sorry. It is connected, but different in the. NDE world because it's part of it. Well, this it's a subcategory of it. Not everyone exactly. experiences leaving their body. They're right. just suddenly in another place. But some people really do. They look down oh, at themselves yeah. and they even say they're still connected by a thin silver the cord. Silver, right. The silver rope cord. that we the talked rope. about earlier. Yes. Well, we haven't heard about this in the NDE research that we've done. But when he says disturbed bodily multisensory integration, yeah. again, not sure what that means either. But I do remember in reading about trying to have an out-of-body experience that in theory, when you first start doing it, there can be a loud roaring sound. Rushing that, wind. Rushing yes. wind yeah. that has to do with your soul disconnecting from your senses, which I thought is really fascinating because your soul is so used to that sensory input that when you take it away, it tries to make something up, which we know that's like pareidolia. That's yeah. all that stuff. Your body is constantly trying to fill gaps when there are gaps if you're sensory deprived. You're talking about the dying brain syndrome, which we're going to get to in the scientific portion of this discussion, in that it is simply the NDE experience, simply your brain filling in the gaps, playing the tape. Because it's being denied yes. the normal inputs that yes. it gets. Either your heart, oxygen, your dying the body panics, it plays the tape, it plays the program, it hits play, and it is simply this NDE experience, part of that, which every living organism goes through because there was a study of rats, they had their hearts stopped, and what was noticed is that the EEG spike, the uh, energy goes way up, it spikes much higher than, even if they were just conscious and alive as their hearts were stopped. And then what happens, or what the, the argument is, is like, well, that's just what happens to every living being is that when you're uh, in a, a dying panic, the brain goes into these functions and that's what the experience is. Everything we've talked about, the light, the tunnel, the feeling of well-being. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of us, right, get, right, get, yeah. but I do in a way, because this is the perfect <laughs> sure. time to say this. Sure, sure. What would be the evolutionary reason for that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my question, too. People go, well, you know, your brain is searching for a similar experience, so it plays back everything well, that's ever happened be a, to you. If you're just going to be that a pilot, doesn't make dust. any sense. And that's also not yeah. what happens during an NDE. That right. is not. The yeah. life review is never reported as, I suddenly had a panicked feeling, and I reviewed every element of my life searching for something that felt like this. Right. In a way, you do have to listen to what the people who have the experiences, you have to listen to what they're saying. And <laughs> yeah, often well, what well, they're we saying say that is, about every paranormal experience. Well, listen yeah. to the people that had it. Well, I mean, it's, it's now that I've had one, I feel I'm no, I'm on the weird other side of that now where I'm like, people don't believe me, but also I don't care. 
Yeah. It's weird. You yeah, just, yeah. everything changes. Your whole perspective shifts. Well, what people often talk about, and I do want to talk about the life review so badly, and I so wish we just had someone here who had some really vivid yeah. near-death experience with an extensive life review, because I've heard a lot of anecdotes. But one of the most puzzling things about it is how people explain that not only are they experiencing their life from their own point of view, they're experiencing their life from the point of view of everyone they've ever interacted with. So yes. every incident that they are reliving, they are reliving it from the other person's point of view also. When I did that All thing, the people. Well, in many people, not right. every single person. No, no, no. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. It's a forced walk a mile situation here. And you're, yes. yeah. Is you're it, suddenly is going, it when quantum. I did that thing, this is how that other person felt. Yeah. Right, when I took Timmy's lunch money. Right. There's what, <laughs> here's how Timmy out. felt about me. Exactly. Yeah, at that moment. Yeah. And some people have even said that they are shown a panoramic life review. Yes. Where everything they've done, they get at least a peripheral sense of the sort of butterfly effect. So yes. when I did that, it caused this person to do that thing, which caused this thing oh, to that other chain person. Of events. All these chains of events. Here's what I'm curious about with the panoramic life review. If you go too fast, is it like the iPhone where you might get that horse that just has two legs or a really <laughs> long dog? Because imagine how that would is feel. Is that a thing? Or you'd be like, oh my God, what is that? You know, you know I haven't heard that reported, Scott, but that's a really good question. Maybe we it'll should, happen We now. should investigate okay, that. Okay, yeah. Um, we'll we we'll, we'll back burner that. that for now. This is also an element of the NDE is that there are no words to describe it. Ineffability. Yes, one of the tenets of That's the That's why NDE. Rich is here, his depending vocabulary. On, well, depending on the researcher, <laughs> because we're going to look at what researchers' tenets are in their canon of defining this experience. But what I wanted to say is that people will think like, well, this is really rare. And it's like, it is. Rich asked me earlier if I knew anybody that had the classic experience. And I forgot at the time, <laughs> this is somebody I was supposed to contact, Scott and I were going to, a good friend of mine who did go through an experience, but it wasn't the full thing. So as we'll see, maybe we'll define the elements of what, how it lays out would you call Under it these, a, a near near-death experience? She was in a bad accident and was dying and was given a choice, heard the question put to her, but did not experience all the other tenants. So that was just an auditory question. Yeah. Wow. It was a horrible accident, but it gives you hope, which is the point of us doing this story around the holidays. Here's the thing. It's also not that rare because the number of people who have reported near-death experiences has increased significantly because medical technology has advanced to the point where a lot more people who have been declared clinically dead have been able to be resuscitated. And these patients' NDE stories have since been collected by researchers and analyzed for common factors and characteristics by a lot of reputable organizations like the International Association for Near-Death Studies and individual author researchers like uh, Celia Elizabeth Green, who in 1968, you know, she was the one who had collected 400 stories of firsthand accounts of NDEs. And what's significant about that is that that was really the first time that somebody tried to put a taxonomy on it, meaning let's take these anecdotal stories and now try to categorize them scientifically. So that was very important. But in general, here's uh, some figures I thought would be interesting for our listeners to hear about uh, how many people have experienced this. Surveys of people who have experienced an NDE have been conducted, and the results show that in the past 50 years, over 25 million people worldwide have had some kind of NDE, with around 3 to 5% of the population 
reporting an NDE. If you're talking about medically being documented, a cardiologist from the Netherlands, Dr. Pim van Lommel, conducted a study on cardiac arrest patients who were successfully revived, and he found that 18% had had an NDE. So that's one in five. But what happened to the other 82%? Well, <laughs> why did they not have an NDE? And that's a question. Or not did every... they pass away? I don't know. No, no, no. But I'm th there yeah. are people who are declared clinically dead who are then revived and come back and had no experience at all that they recall. Right. That they recall. Right. And I think that's an important yes. thing. It's just like, I didn't look this up, so I may be misrepresenting it, but mm. it's my understanding, and you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong, maybe, that you dream every night, but you don't always remember the dream. True. You do wonder, maybe 100% of people are having them, and it's just the 18% that are remembering it. Now it gets really mind-bendy, because if you say, okay, there is an afterlife, people have a soul, consciousness can exist outside the body, and you go on to a non-physical existence after death. In many of these philosophies, the events that happen to you in your life are either predestined or chosen. Right. Okay, so now we get into this loop. You're living, you have a near-death experience that becomes part of the physical life that you live. It changes your trajectory like a, a ball on a pool table. Right, right. Your trajectory is now changed. Often people, their whole approach to life changes. And now the events in your life are different. You're living a different life. Then you die, conclusively die. And now that's the life you had, right. a life that included a near-death experience. Right, right. And other people clinically die, are revived with no conscious recall of a near-death experience, so their lives do not change necessarily in that way. They may change in other ways. Maybe people wake up from those experiences feeling like, hey, I was there. It was nothing. It was blank. There is no afterlife. And that influences how they live the rest of their life and as we'll get to later, some people have a near-death experience and come back really, really afraid of dying because what they experienced was not so hot so. There's so many of these, and it's very well-documented phenomenon. There's thousands of stories. Thousands of stories, multiple websites. And we went through and looked at a lot of them. We've read some in some of the books that we read for our research. There's one here that I particularly wanted to talk about. This comes from the INS.org website. That's the International Association for near-death studies, I-A-N-D-S dot org. And uh, they have a large collection of NDEs. This is one of two websites that we looked at. We'll talk about the other one in a little bit. And on this website, this was one that really stood out to me that I thought was very interesting. And this was about a woman who essentially died during childbirth. Mm -hmm. And the experience that she had was very similar in a lot of ways to the idea of what we talked about earlier, levitating outside your body, right. the idea that this is an out-of-body experience, but this is different because this involves death. So there's a longer story here, and we have a link to it in our show notes, but I just wanted to read some of the particular parts. She was going through a, a particularly difficult labor and had gotten to a point in the process where they were going to try and administer an anesthesia to help her out, but that was taking so long that she actually gave birth before that could happen. And during that process, that's when everything kind of stopped for her and she had this experience. And I'm going to quote a little bit of the story. You can read the whole story if you follow the link in the show notes. But uh, this is part of her story here. The sweetest sound to my ear was the gentle cry of her voice, meaning her baby. Just knowing that she was breathing made me feel relieved. But I felt myself slipping and unable to breathe. The last words I heard from the doctor were, Come on, stop bleeding. I looked in the overhead mirror 
and I saw that my skin color was very bluish gray. I felt my heart pumping faster and faster, trying to keep up with the loss of blood. The nurse slapped an oxygen mask over me and yelled at me to breathe. I just looked at her and thought, I can't, I'm too tired. Then everything inside just stopped. I felt a peace come over me. My heart stopped and my breathing stopped. I felt like a wave of movement rising above my body to the ceiling. It was wonderful. No more pain. I feel so light. No heavy body. So at this point in the experience, she is actually experiencing being outside of her body. And something that we already mentioned at the top of the show is being free from the burden of her body, especially in the condition it was in at that moment while she was giving birth. At first, I wondered why were lights shining in my eyes. Then I realized I was immersed in a white light all around me. I asked to please send me back to be with my new baby. I could hear someone saying, I'll go back with her, but I didn't recognize the voice or see anyone. I don't know why I knew to converse with the light. It just felt right. I then felt my form of energy snap back into my body. I felt pain and heaviness again. It was like slipping back into an old shoe. She goes on to say, and at the end of her statement, my life has not been the same as before the experience. I used to fear the unknown death experience. Now I know there is nothing on earth like the love that is felt in that white light. I am looking forward to someday experiencing that feeling again. In the meantime, I see the world as a different place than before. A lot of classic elements in that story, which is why we thought it was great to read that one. Plus, it's uplifting. Yeah, and there's more to it. Again, we have a link to it, so you can read the full story if you follow the link. And I just want to thank uh, ins.org for posting all those accounts. It's really yeah. You can really go down the rabbit hole there and just read, read and read and read about them. That one has a lot of elements that are like an out-of-body experience, but there's a difference there. During an out-of-body experience, a person has the perception of the world and or themselves from a location that is outside of their physical body, but it seems it's not necessarily from the result of trauma or the death process. This seeing oneself from outside the body, or in other words, not seeing the world from out of one's own eyes, is a form of autoscopy. Rich told me to pronounce it that way. Literally meaning <laughs> seeing self. However, according to the wiki entry on it, the term autoscopy more commonly refers to the pathological condition of seeing a second self or a doppelganger. Doppelganger? Vardogger? Oh, yeah, like the Vardogger. Yes. I like it. Yeah. But That's I think a... these are very different. I mean, I think yeah. every, everyone describes these things in the same way. You're rising up, you look back. Often there is a, a, a physical connection of some sort. I mean, right. floating up to the corner of the room, observing the medical procedure. These are... It's become a I cliche I would be shocked almost. if you have not heard these stories. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been told so many times, it's kind of become a cliche. And I think there's a weird side effect of that in that... It gets into a category in your mind as a person that hasn't experienced it. It's like, oh, that's just another story or whatever. But there's a reason that it's a cliche. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> happening to a lot of people. Yes, exactly. So just because you can label it that way doesn't mean that it's not happening. And this is the bigger well, yeah. question for me. Yeah. And maybe this isn't the time to introduce it. But you do get to a point where there's so many of them in so many of these cases that you're able to say... This is happening. These people believe this is happening to them. This right. is not 25 million people lying about right. an experience. So right. then you're just down to the question of what is this experience? Is it all in the mind or is it a true experience outside of the body that is related to death? 
And some people might say, well, you hear these stories, you watch TV, you hear about it, and then that's what shapes your fantasy. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you've already heard the story. Or your religious, whatever the structure of religion well, you have in your life. It's well known that people with no religion and really no knowledge of a near-death experience have had near-death experiences. I think more likely in the history of humanity, people had near-death experiences and from the tales they brought back with them, modern religions have grown. This is not a modern phenomenon. People say, well, you saw a TV show that talks about it, or, okay, let's go back to the 18th or 17th century. Here's stories about it. These anecdotes go back to the beginning of human beings, as Scott said in the opening. They're not new. There have always been tales of people almost dying and then had a fantastical story to tell about that with sensations to the surviving people around them, which were noted. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like you, you didn't see that from a TV show or a book you read. And again, if we take what we know about the near-death experience and reverse human history for you know several hundred thousand years, you have people coming back and telling stories primarily of a wonderful world full of beautiful colors and light and music and right. feelings of love. Yeah. In other words, imagery that we associate with heaven and then other people come back with darker, scarier stories, which become later formalized into stories of hell. Right. I would say, though, that the documentation and the serious study in an organized way is probably a 20th century endeavor. Most oh, totally. Yeah. And it is in its pre-infancy. Yeah. I mean, if you really look into this stuff and thank God people are doing it and more than any other paranormal phenomenon, I think people really are studying the near-death experience and applying science in all the best ways they can. And the more you dig into it, the more you realize, boy, we have not even scratched the surface of the surface in terms of understanding what these experiences really are. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there are major authors and researchers and scientists who took up the mantle of looking into this. And there are some notable names. So we'll go over a few of those. One, in regards to the difference between an NDE and an OBE, an out-of-body experience, was George Nugent Merle Tyrell. Great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of a mouthful. Uh, he passed away. I have all their albums. <laughs> <laughs> but he was more popularly known, of course, as GNM Tyrell. And he passed away himself in 1952. Well, I didn't he was know a... he was sick. <laughs> oh. I couldn't resist. Well, he was a British mathematician, physicist, radio engineer, and parapsychologist. And it is he who is first believed to have coined the term out-of-body experience in 1943 in his book, Apparitions. It's since been adopted by researchers like Robert Monroe, of the founder of the Monroe Institute. Right. Other terms for the OBE experience, such as astral projection, yeah. soul travel, or spirit walking, they're more associated with spirituality or belief-centric ideas. So the term OBE would be, I, I guess, seen more objectively acceptable to researchers. So he's the one who came up with OBE. But here's an interesting thing about interesting guys like that. Tyrell was a student of Guglielmo Marconi and a pioneer in the development of radio. Yeah. His resume wasn't fabulous enough. He had to add in, uh, I helped invent the radio. In 1908, he joined the Society for Psychical Research and was president of that organization from 1945 to 1946. And he did a lot of experiments in telepathy, was interested in 
apparitional experiences, and he attempted to explain ghosts by a psychological theory. He proposed that ghosts are a hallucination of the subconscious mind of a person to explain collective hallucinations for more than one person. He proposed it was kind of a telepathic mechanism. But although he was a believer in telepathy, Tyrell was a critic of physical mediumship, and he stated that mediumship was the, quote, happy hunting ground of tricksters and charlatans. So I've kind of rode the fence there between uh, belief and uh, skepticism and, you know, academic pursuits and trying to understand all this. But anyway, so that was the guy who started to really take a look at this scientifically and coined the term, which we're talking about now, but for just the out-of-body experience. You could say that the difference between NDEs and OBEs as an NDE could cause an OBE, but an OBE doesn't need to come from an NDE or dying. Well, maybe, Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think we need to cut it into two categories. Yeah. Well, the induced out-of-body experience and right. the spontaneous out-of-body yes. experience, yes. which would be those associated with a near-death experience. And other people have had them just having like, you know, minor dental surgery. <laughs> right, right. But then other people through meditation and other psychological or physical or meditative practices are able to induce an out-of-body experience. And that's what some of those books, the Robert Monroe books, yeah, yeah. sort of teach you how to do, which is fascinating to me because it always feels like, well, okay, so here's what you do. Take a person, teach them how to have out-of-body experiences at will, lock them in one room, and then down the hall in the other room, place four objects on a table. Right, right. Have right. them leave their body, float down the hall, float into that other room, look at those four objects, and then float on back, come out of the out-of-body experience and go, here are the four objects. <laughs> Has it ever been done? Uh, I think there have been, but again, those are from TV shows I probably saw in the 90s as a kid. So I can't <laughs> you know, really quote them, but, but those are the um, elements commonly accepted with OBEs, what you're talking about, usually induced by brain traumas, but not always, could be sensory deprivation, near-death experiences, as we're talking about, dissociative and psychedelic drugs, dehydration could be one of them, or electrical stimulation of the brain. So here's what's weird. One in 10 people have an OBE once, and even stranger, more commonly, several times in their lives. You must be talking about spontaneous ones because uh, there's yeah. no way 10% of people on earth are sitting down trying to leave their bodies. Unless you're a, a yogi, because <laughs> I've heard well, them, okay, that's, them that's being able to percentage. do that, or okay, you've taken sure. the course at the Monroe Institute, then yeah. I hope it would pay off that much. But yeah, it, that's uh, a spontaneous weird figure. Ones. I wonder how you get that figure. Yeah, I don't know. One in 10 people. Uh, but anyway, what's interesting is that I guess like a lot of paranormal experiences, to those people that it happens to, it is happening several times throughout their life, unpredictably, but multiple times. Again, that well, goes, is that experience yeah, choosing the be. person? Well, and there are people who have had multiple near-death experiences, right, which right. is weird because it feels like such a needle in a haystack kind of Well, winning the occurrence. lotto several times, but you know, we, we know that that happens. And if you look at it as something that is partially physical, okay, we're physical bodies and let's say we have souls or consciousness that can exist outside of those physical bodies, that means that in some way, in some physical or slightly less than physical way, something is leaving your physical body. Right, right. And if you can do it, like I had this whole theory that kind of like what you just said, that once you do it, once it happens, whether it's on purpose or accidentally, 
you sort of broke that barrier and now it's easier uh, yes, to do. Exactly. Right? That is one of the uh, theories is that there is some barrier preventing us. That is, of course, as you know, it's one of the tenets in consciousness, daily life. It's your brain. Something is preventing you from experiencing that probably protectively. But once you get past that, then it is easier to do. Yeah. You sort of break that barrier once and now it never quite heals. So you, yeah, <laughs> it's more well, like a that, no, that, that say, scab never quite grows. Yeah, exactly. I've heard friends say, you know, they have a weak spot on their body. It's like, ah, oh, man, I always get a scab there. Or I get injured there. Or, you know, it's a chapped lip on your, you know, something that is like, yeah, this always flares up. It's kind of like that thing where you, once you've pierced the veil, then it becomes more gauzy. Well, not only that, and that's why I think people have an increase in ESP phenomenon after having an out-of-body experience, right. a near-death experience, an right. alien abduction experience. Once your consciousness can leave your body and then experience whatever is less than physical, right. you're now open to that a bit more. Exactly. You've raised your antenna just enough to pick yeah. up that higher frequency, right. and you can pick up some stuff every once in a while, because people do come back from these experiences changed in that way. Oh, sure. Suddenly sure. they do see the future. They're more empathic. Right. They have precognitive dreams, the whole range of parapsychological phenomenon. Sympathetic in a way. But Scott, weren't you talking about some part of that being protective in not experiencing that? That is a way of like, no, no, you needed to go do your daily things and live your life. So you're being protected from these types of paranormal or you know near death experiences. The reason that we don't experience these things. Oh, that is might have been me. That well, was maybe me. Oh, I think it was me talking At about dinner. George Hansen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so George Hansen's book, Trickster and the Paranormal. Yes, yeah. right. But he had actually done. I'd heard him on another podcast, and it's funny because he's kind of embedded within the skeptic community and also embedded within the paranormal community. Sure, and is totally open to and embracing of the realistic possibility of the paranormal. But one of the things he says about being a skeptic and how people are sort of naturally skeptical about this kind of stuff, he says that might be evolutionary and it might be adaptive and it might be for our own good mm. because that stuff does exist out there, right. but it has never really been proven to be beneficial to humanity and the forward movement of, <laughs> right. of people's healthy lives. I mean, you just found that out, Scott. Yeah. I'm a little concerned about the whole barrier being broken thing. Yeah. I feel like if that plays through for me, and I, I don't know, it's too soon to know, but I mean, I've already had a few strange experiences since what I experienced at Sally House. I'm wondering if that's going to be an ongoing thing or it's just a... Well, I don't know. Beyond those rocks you carry with you, you might <laughs> seriously want to think about, well, how do people who have had these experiences protect themselves going yeah. forward? Yeah, I've had some very gracious offers from our listeners, actually, in that regard, mm -hmm. and, uh, and also some of the other people we've met since yes. we started this show. Yeah. So I, I may be going down that road. Hey, man, so you going to see your family over the holidays? I am indeed. You know, I'm sorry. I should, probably shouldn't have asked you about that on the air. You're not supposed to talk about being out of town on the internet, right? Uh, well, yeah, normally that's true, yeah. But I gotta say, you know, for the first time, I'm a lot less worried about leaving my place this year because I now have Simply Safe home security. That's a great point. I have it too, and it really does give you peace of mind. Seriously, it works even if your power goes out. It doesn't need a phone line, and if a burglar destroys your keypad or siren, Simply Safe still gets you the help you need. Uh, does it have a Santa Claus mode? <laughs> 
thing? <laughs> I don't think so. Because you know you don't want him being perp walked out of your joint while you're out of town. Talk about waking up to a really bad tweet storm. <laughs> I'm sure that's not an issue for him. Uh, I, you know, I'm assuming he can bend time and space. Oh yeah, but you're right. Well, one of the other great things about Simply Safe is that you can set it up yourself in just a few minutes, and they don't have you sign any contracts. Look, we recommend Simply Safe home security to all of our friends, and at just $14.99 a month, it's such a fair price that it's an easy sell. The system makes a great gift, too. Simply Safe keeps it affordable because they believe nothing should get between you and protecting your family. And today, you can save hundreds of dollars on that protection if you go to simplysafe.com/al. That's simplysafe.com/al. Make sure to use that URL because that's how they know we sent you. But hurry, this holiday offer's ending soon. simplysafe.com slash AL. Hi, I'm Jenna, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Boris Burgess. Now back to the show. Okay, so I told you guys that I had read this book by Dr. Michael Sabum, who is a cardiologist, and he's written a couple of books on near-death experiences. The first and more famous one originally was called Recollections of Death, A Medical Investigation, and uh, that one came out, let's see. Yeah, what what era? This was the late 70s? Yeah, this one was published in 1982, actually. It's a great time for music. And (laughs) then the newer book is called Light and Death, One Doctor's Fascinating Account of Near-Death Experiences. And again, this is Dr. Sabum when he wrote his first book book, he was very scientific in his method and his approach, and he was in his second book as well. But in the first one, he left religion out of it. In the second one, he cops to the fact that he is a devout Christian, and he talks about that, but he still tries to be impartial in the investigations. And there was one particular story in here that we thought was interesting to put into the series, and I'm actually just going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. This starts on location 184 in the Kindle edition of Dr. Sabum's book, Light and Death. It was Sunday morning, 9.50 a.m., July 31st, 1994. The central heart monitor at the nurse's station was setting off an alarm that filled the entire cardiac unit with the high-pitched and rapid ding, 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 indicating a heart in VTAC. Nurses and doctors ran to Daryl's room. This is about Daryl. My forehead was sweaty and I was cold and shivery, Daryl told me. A gentleman on my left-hand side took off my glasses and told me to cough a couple of times. A cough temporarily slows down the heart, much like a sneeze, forces the eyelids shut in reflex. Sometimes this can convert the heart back to a normal rhythm. That's interesting. Right? That's good to know. Yeah, it's good to know. It didn't work for Daryl, however. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> still, still good to know. Yeah. Quote, a guy threw a mask over my face and told me to breathe deeply, Daryl said. I began to get faint. I breathed three times. Boom, I was out. I could hear it first, but then the voices were getting fainter. Though no longer a practicing Christian, Daryl began to recite Bible verses he recalled from childhood. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Suddenly, everything around Daryl became sky blue. He was completely engulfed in it. Quote, I looked at this real pretty blue, and then I saw the faces of all my friends and loved ones, my daughter, my wife, her mother and dad, my mom and dad. The pictures raced by like a high-speed panoramic slideshow. All the while, Daryl continued to recite the psalm until he finished the fourth verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The faces stopped, and Daryl found himself hovering at ceiling level, looking down on a team of six doctors and nurses working on his body. 
Daryl wasn't watching alone. At his right side stood, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote, Daryl said. With his left arm wrapped around me, reddish brown hair hung shoulder length on the spirit being, draping around the back of the spirit's blue t-shirt. I kept thinking, I can't die, Lord, because I've got my little girl and I've got my wife. The only response of the spirit being was silence and the hand that continued to rest on Daryl's shoulder. A few feet below, the medical team shocked Daryl's body with 360 joules or watt seconds, converting his heart to atrial flutter, a slower, more stable rhythm of about 160 beats per minute. 10 minutes later, they hit him again, this time with 50 joules, followed by 200 joules in an unsuccessful effort to further slow his heart to normal rhythm. After 10 more minutes, they tried a third time, again without success. Daryl had been admitted to the hospital not only to await a transplant, but first to stabilize his rapidly failing heart. For some unknown reason, his heart muscle was becoming increasingly flaccid and limp. With each squeeze, a healthy heart ejects 60% of the blood inside the left ventricle. Daryl's was ejecting only 9%. The rest was backing up into his lungs instead of being distributed through his body. For almost a year, medication had assisted his heart, but now the medication was no longer working and doctors were afraid they had missed the window of opportunity for a transplant. So that is the summation of Daryl's near-death experience. He actually wound up recovering. He had a major surgery where they put a balloon in his heart, yeah, uh, what they call the right. uh, balloon insertion. And apparently that operation was also kind of tricky. But at this point, he had another NDE. And in the second one, he said he was hovering near the ceiling. He saw Sandy, who was one of the nurses there, and he saw her that she was dressed in pink. And he scanned the room. Again, he's floating above here. When he woke up, he saw these others, and it confirmed what he had seen when he was floating outside his body. Now, of course, in this case, you could say, well, he saw that when he woke up, and now he's just saying he saw it when he wasn't awake. And that's when things get kind of dicey with the near-death experiences. Mm. But I guess he then had a third experience, because this guy was having a lot of problems with his heart. And he said in the third experience, he said it was the best one. Only then did the spirit being speak in only a single word, not from voice box to eardrum, but in the inaudible language of spirit to spirit. The word, Daryl believes, related to concerns he felt as he watched the doctors resuscitating. Though Daryl had told his wife not to worry about him, he was worried about her. They had been married for only five weeks. He was worried too about his eight-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. She wasn't getting along with her stepfather. I asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? And he just said, go. Bam, I felt the electric shock that time. I came right back to earth that quick. On the basis of that one word, go, Daryl returned with a deep assurance he was going to live, receive the transplant, and be there for his family. Hmm. So he's got three experiences going on. He should have died a bunch of different times. And in this experience, he feels that he met Jesus. But Jesus didn't speak to him. In the first one, he just had his hand on his shoulder. He comes down, he describes the room, the people in the room. And when he wakes up, he confirms that they're there and what they're wearing. And that's related to his second experience. And in the third experience, he's having these concerns. And the only communication he gets from that spirit that was there was go, as in go back to your body it's not your time, essentially. Well, let's not forget that Jesus was wearing a blue T-shirt. Yeah. Wait, was that? <laughs> it that does was, say that, that in the was, book. Right? Yeah, that was Jesus. With his reddish-brown hair yes. floating next to him like Daryl Hall. Right. You know, it's it could like... have been an Astonishing Legend shirt, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't see the front. Did he? Oh, he didn't yeah. see the, the <laughs> Astonishing Owl. <laughs> his yeah. glows yeah. in the dark, as they all do. But for this guy, that's who that was. Yeah. And, and when you read a lot of cases, there will be people they recognize as dead relatives. And then there will be a stranger, a spiritual figure. Yes. Might, they might identify as Jesus or God. 
And there's a whole range. Sometimes they'll simply say, there was this sentient light and I knew it was God, or God was presenting himself to me as just warm, glowing water, you know, that right. was surrounding me. So, and somehow they know it's like, well, that's not what God looks like, but for some reason, that's how God was choosing to well, show what, himself or herself to me in it, that moment yeah. in a way I could accept. Well, have you ever had a dream like that? Because that's what's interesting to me when you think about it, where you have that dream where you know somebody in the dream is a certain person, but they don't look like them at all. Uh, yeah. In dream symbology, they say certain items or things. It's like if you see a, um, a fish. That's, of course, representative of Jesus. And especially if the fish, I remember this one description of a very vivid dream. The guy said he was, it was just ultra beautiful. This stream and the sun is sparkling and out of the stream jumps this beautiful gleaming silver fish. And he, he wasn't fishing, but you know, it was just kind of a moment. And he then instantly knew like that's supposed to be, it's not Jesus in the body of the fish. It's a representation, which is well, how yeah. dream language works. Yes. Well, why wouldn't it work possibly in this realm as well, where you're seeing, yeah, I'll see somebody in a dream. And it's like, that's not my dad, but it's supposed to be like my dad or it's an authority figure. And that's also part of dream. Well, I'll like for me, it's like, I'll know it's my dad, but I'll look at him and realize that it doesn't look like, or when I right. wake up and I remember it, I remember thinking, I know it was my dad, but it didn't look like him at all. Right. Well, it could be, that's a, what they say with dream interpretation is it, it just could be an authority figure. Right. You see a police officer in uniform. It's not necessarily a police officer. That could be your dad. It's somebody who's in authority. That's the symbology of it. You're revising my dreams here. I'm telling yes. you that I woke up and I knew it was my dad <laughs> yeah. and it didn't look like didn't my look dad. Like, it right. wasn't some anonymous cop. No, what I'm Which saying is though, strange is that, because you, yeah. you have met your dad. Yes. And you know what he Several looks like. I do know so what my dad looks like. You've seen pictures. Yes, yeah. I've seen pictures. No, like. I just know that I've come out of these dreams and been like, oh, so-and-so was there and you were there and you were there and you, but right. then you didn't look like what you look like in the yeah. real world. If you're moving into a, a realm of consciousness yeah. that is not as literal as the physical world we live in, then it kind of makes sense like Forrest was saying, that things will be perhaps more symbolic. Here's something that everyone says. They just knew. And that yes. phrase is so often repeated by everybody with these experiences, especially ones where it's like, that wasn't your father. It didn't look like him, right? It's like, no, I knew it was. Don't tell me what I knew. Yes, which is what you did to me a minute ago. No, no, I was giving another example. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that wasn't your dad. Well, yeah. Forrest, when you dream about Scott's dad, what does he look like? <laughs> He's... He's just cop. exactly uh, <laughs> as he was in the Sally House footage. He's in there, but I, we've not posted any of that. No, that. we have not. I left my dad out yeah. of it. A lot of these NDEs, there is a dreamlike quality. And as we'll see later here, when some of these might be able to be generated by, we'll say, more natural but mechanical means, then what you see is that there are elements of this, but not totally. It's kind of like dreamlets can be produced with those same elements, but also not totally the entire OBE and NDE experience. So you can't talk about near-death experiences without talking about the father of the idea of the near-death experience, which is Raymond Moody, who published his book Life After Life in 1975. He's the one that popularized the term, the near-death experience, which for him encompassed all the different elements of an out-of-body experience, the panoramic life review, the light, the tunnel, or the border. The word actually had been used about three years earlier by Dr. John Cunningham Lilly, who, that's a little bit of a side note, but he was a American physician, neuroscientist, psychoanalyst, psychonaut, philosopher, writer, and inventor. He is most famous for having developed the isolation tank. He also tried to talk to dolphins, but that's another story. 
Uh, um, well, you remember no, the? No, no, he didn't try. He talked. He talked it off. Yeah, but they and they talked back, but he didn't understand what they were saying. Right, a lot of yeah. squeaking and talk about seafood. But yeah. do you remember? <laughs> it was a seminal film for myself. Flipper. No, Altered show. States. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. William oh, Hurt, which yeah. was based oh, on, on. But yeah. that's a part of the out-of-body experience here. Or the NDE is the psychotropic manifestation through hallucinogenic drugs. And Dr. Lilly was a, um, a lot of his ideas were used to inspire the film yes. with William Hurt. Yes, but getting back to Moody, who was is more closely associated with the idea of the near-death experience, in 1965, while he was an undergrad at the University of Virginia, he encountered psychiatrist Dr. George Ritchie, who had told him about an incident where he believed he had gone into the afterlife while he was dead for almost 10 minutes when he was 20 years old. And he actually wrote a book about that called Return from Tomorrow. That came out in 1978. That's Dr. George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow. So Moody got interested in this, and he started documenting other accounts of similar stories. And he found all these common features, the sensation of going through a tunnel, encountering dead relatives, a bright light. And that's when he published his book, Life After Life. It was based on mm. all that research that was instigated by meeting Dr. Ritchie in 1965. In an interview with Jeffrey Mishlove, Moody shared his personal conclusions about his research into near-death experiences. This is uh, from the Wikipedia page on Moody. Quote, I don't mind saying that after talking with over a thousand people who have had these experiences and having experienced many times some of the really baffling and unusual features of these experiences, it has given me great confidence that there is life after death. As a matter of fact, I must confess to you in all honesty, I have absolutely no doubt on the basis of what my patients have told me that they did get a glimpse of the beyond. Okay, now that was Raymond Moody's conclusion. Yes, yeah. yes. Interesting. Okay. He said something really interesting. He said, and having experienced many times some of the really baffling and unusual features of these experiences. Now, what does that mean? It sounds yeah. like what he's saying that he personally witnessed or experienced some of the peripheral phenomenon, much of which ended up in a book he wrote called Glimpses of Eternity. Right. And that's when we get into the shared death experience. But again, we'll get to <laughs> that later. later. Boom, boom. Uh, <laughs> hashtag. I'm home. So this keeps going on, though, with Raymond Moody's inspired one of his own students, who later became a doctor, Dr. Bruce Grayson, who was also an NDE researcher. And he created a scale based on a set of questions. And there's a lot of this. You read about this because I read also Dr. Sabum's book. Dr. Sabum published a book called uh, Recollections of Death, a Medical Investigation. Mm -hmm. And then there's a newer one called Light and Death, but here's what's interesting about those two books by Sabum. The first one was he's a cardiologist and he had done all this research on near-death experiences and he wrote it very impartially with relation to religion, although he is a devout Christian. The newer book, Light and Death, takes Christianity into account, although he tries to stay impartial about the experiences. Oh, yeah. So it's just interesting, the shifting thing there. That yeah. is Sabum. Yeah, that's Sabum. Yes, right. And it's right. tough because Eben Alexander wrote that book, which, you know, the word heaven was in the title. Yes. That always bugs me because I see that and I'm like, oh my God, you know, every individual is allowed to interpret their near-death experience however they want. Yes. But the more they use terms like heaven and other words that are associated with Christianity, I mean, that's a dog whistle to the skeptics to go, well... Here right. you are. Yeah. It's either A, a person pushing religion, and some people have used the NDE to push religion. 
or they're immediately, it's, it's being contextualized in a way that is anathema to them. And I get it. Right. And so it's like, oh God, I wish you could strip that stuff away. And yet there are atheists who have had near-death experiences and come back and they're like, Jesus is my homie. <laughs> well, and that's what's fascinating right, right. about Sabum's book. And I guess we can talk more in depth about him in a bit, but I feel like having read his newer book, where he says, hey, you know what? Look, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to approach this from that. I'm also sure. a cardiologist. I know a lot of people that have had NDEs. He also was very clinical and scientific about the systems he developed, and that's what my point was about Dr. Grayson. He came up with questions, and he also elucidated all these other researchers that have questions and scales and charts, and everybody's got a thing that's like, oh, well, if you answer these questions this way, you get a score on how you've changed since right. before your NDE and after. Right. And there's been a lot of study of this material, and that's what I think is fascinating. But because everyone's trying to be as impartial as they can be, he, of course, talks about in his book about cases where people believe that they have encountered Jesus, or mm -hmm. specifically, it's Jesus. And he said, sometimes he talks to them, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes right. they hear other voices. It's fascinating, but that's not all the cases either. It's only right. a percentage of them. And right. all those percentages are broken down. There's the experience, and then there's the person coming back. And the minute they start talking, they're interpreting. Yeah, that's it a good point. It calls to our earlier point with Robert Monroe adopting the term or favoring the term out-of-body experience over something called astral projection or soul walking or, right. you know what I'm saying? Because it gets away, it's trying to be more objective towards a scientific aim, at least not getting the criticisms off the bat from people saying, well, there you go, it's a Judeo-Christian. And of course, people experience it that way. So a lot of it is in the terminology, but within the questionnaires that you talked about, that's a way to then start drawing parallels and similarities and try to get a taxonomy of the phenomenon. Okay, so Bruce Grayson, I talked about a, like it was almost like 15 points, but mm -hmm. what are those six points that Bruce Grayson indicates as being sort of central to the NDEs worldwide? Having an out-of-body experience. Yeah, number one. The feeling of being in a tunnel. Number two. Seeing a light. Number three. Encountering deceased relatives and or religious figures. Four. I think people know. Having, <laughs> no, having I'm, for us, I, this by is for all me. means. I have one job. Me. Yeah. <laughs> having a sense of peace and well-being. Five. And this one is the one that fascinated me yeah. as we really got into this topic. Feeling a reluctance to return to life. Number six, and of course, because it's so much better. It's like, what are the first stories you told? Yeah, you just gave birth to a daughter, but I'm released of this mortal coil, this heavy, burdensome body. It's got to be the most wonderful feeling. Finally, I'm done with this thing. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's just the <clears throat> aches and pains, the gassiness, all that goes along with it. Other than the fact that you have uh, something you love back on Earth that you must attend to, which brings you back. But a lot of people, that's one of the tenets is that you love it there. But as Rich said earlier, it's like, that's not always the answer you get. It's like, can I go? No, you can't. It's not your time. You don't get to stay here. So then you come back into your physically damaged body or you're on the uh, operating table or whatever. But then for the rest of your life, the one fact we all live with is that we're going to die someday. Right. And these people come back with a feeling of, I can't wait. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I, maybe that's uh, characterizing incorrectly. They're not like immediately jumping out a window and killing themselves, but they're suddenly like, all right, big sigh of relief. I understand this existence and I'm kind of looking forward to that next thing. So right. 
without a fear of death, I can approach life a little differently. And boy, I tell you, that is about the most seductive notion I can imagine. Right, right. Shall I tell my quick story about the, the vague Fred uh, sure. and their experience in pain? Well, it comes back to Rich's statement about the question, the offer you are proposed in that state of the dying process. And this friend, as I said earlier, was in a horrible accident. And as they were lying there on the ground before the emergency services came, a voice came through and they were feeling no pain at this point, which is odd because this was a horrible accident, which was going to be life changing. Their life was in the balance right there. And uh, they heard this clear clarion voice come through saying, I'm paraphrasing here, that you have a choice. You can be whisked away. We will take you away right now and you will stop feeling this pain, but your life will be over. You will cease to exist in the earthly plane with the people you know, but you will enter a new realm and it'll be a different thing. Or you can choose to stay here on earth and continue with your life, but you will experience horrible pain in a few moments and it will be a struggle and it will be a challenge, but that will also be a choice and that will be another life for you. So what is it? Forrest, when you say it, it does sound like a game show. <laughs> I'm not, there's no mention of doors. There's no llamas. Like door number two might be a monkey, uh, a chimp dressed in a birthday suit and you got to take care of it now. There's, there's no choice. It was basically, that's kind of the classical choice you're left with. You can stay here on earth and fight the good fight, but it's going to be painful. It's going to be a travail. You can do that. You can leave this now and be alleviated of all this earthly pain. So what is the choice? Well, my friend chose to remain on earth. And I can't remember if it's mentally or vocally, she out loud said, I choose to stay here. And at that very moment, they were shot through, they described, with this thunderbolt of pain that they described as coming from like outer space or the skies or heaven, straight through their body, going straight through the core of the earth, like a giant pin, just funk. Boy. And then this pain shot through them of what had actually happened to them. And it was like, oh my God, you know, it was overwhelming because they had not felt anything. And that's kind of where that portion of the story ends, other than they took on this mantle of pain and this lifetime of getting through this, but being a spokesperson for others that may have gone through a life-changing... Similar injuries. Yeah, and yeah. that was the lesson there, is that this person became kind of a, uh, a an exemplar yeah. uh, to show people you can get past this. You can live a great life full of all kinds of adventure, but you have to get through it first. So that was the choice. And I thought that was very interesting, though, if you break that down, and that that's how it's presented to you in a lot of these cases. You are given the choice. Do you want to stay here or do you want to continue on Earth and live? It's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of obstacles and hurdles to get through. I mean, it's so weird because it's like counterintuitive. It's like, why would anyone come back? Yeah. But I also get the feeling that some of these people are told at that moment that they are not done. And the information they get 
causes them to sort of take on the burden of continuing the physical life, right. which according to some philosophies, they chose in the first place. And if you're interested in a book length examination of this, which is extremely entertaining and, and oddly positive, there's a book by Natalie Sudman called Application of Impossible Things. She's an Iraq war veteran mm -hmm. and was blown up by a roadside bomb. And in that instant had the most extensively redescribed near-death experience I've, I've ever come across. I mean, so detailed with so many bizarre facets to it and so many like other beings that kind of sat down with her in that instant and helped her decide and figure out exactly how she would come back and actually cured some of her physical ailments so mm. that she could come back, Ooh. which is weird. But think about that for a second. She was having conversations. And then when she decided she would come back, they then intervened with her physical body and repaired some of her injuries in an instant so that she could come back with a certain amount of injuries, which were important to her development personally in this physical lifetime. Mm. So check out this book. It's really interesting. It's written with wit and style and intelligence, and it's really worth your time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, fantastic. I, I think I'd, I'd heard the title. Um, well, there's a couple other things that I think that, that go with Dr. Bruce Grayson's list of definitions. And, uh, you know, one comment on it is about the, seeing the light. The light that people often see is experienced in terms of total love and acceptance. That's one of the feelings you get. Many people identify this feeling with God. Other recurring themes include life review, which I'm going to have you comment about in a second here. Basically, it's a rapid remembering of one's entire life in a quantum way. Also, a couple other things you mentioned earlier, there's some kind of border or barrier over which there is no return to life. Right. That's the point of no return that we talked about earlier. There's a barrier there you cannot come back from. And ineffability in that there's the sense that this experience can't be explained. It cannot be fully captured with words or language. I can't explain it to you. You had to be there. And that's very common in alien abduction experiences, yes, UFO right. experiences, a lot of paranormal experiences. People come back from them and, and they're like, I wish I had the words to accurately describe what happened. Well, did you want to now talk about the life review? Well, the life review is fascinating to me because people describe seeing every instant of their life and reliving it. The question I always want to ask is, wait a second, do you literally mean every instant of your life? Every time you brushed your teeth, every traffic jam, mm -hmm. every time you sat waiting in a doctor's office or most of Prosaic what we do. moments. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember literally going to sleep every night? Do you remember <laughs> the dreams you had? Is this all part of it? I have a feeling some people might say yes. That yeah. in some way, in a brief instant. Okay, so this is from one of the reports on the website, the uh, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And this is an anonymous person who answered a survey, but here's how they described it. They encountered a being of light, and they say, the being of light knew everything about me. It knew all I had ever thought, said, or done, and it showed me my whole life in a flash of an instant. I was shown all the details of my life, the one I'd already lived, and all that was to come if I returned to Earth. Now think about that for a second. I'm jumping out of the story. Sure. You're shown the rest of your life. Mm. Now you come back to life. This person apparently now knows the rest of their life. Right. All right. She says, or he says, I guess, it was all there at the same time, all the details of all the cause and effect relations in my life, all that was good or negative, 
all of the effects my life on earth had had on others and all of the effects the lives of others that had touched me had on me. Every single thought and feeling was there. Nothing was missing. And I could experience the feelings and thoughts of all the other people involved with myself, almost become them, which gave me pure experiential understanding of what brought other people pain or joy, the positive or negative experiences and effects of my own actions. All right. Wow. That doesn't sound like a brain searching in its dying moments <laughs> for a similar experience. It doesn't sound like really any prosaic explanation. It sounds profoundly spiritual and mystical. That yeah. You're suddenly understanding what other people felt when you did things. It's quantum. It's everywhere. And it's a little like Captain Janeway in Star Trek reaching what? warp 10. Star Trek? We're going to Star Trek? Just a, a brief thing, because the way it was described is that almost like Warp 10 is this mythical spiritual state where you are everywhere in the universe. And yeah. I, I I don't remember much about the episode, but I remember them describing that. It's, it's like, I was with the Klingon. I was on this planet. I was everywhere. I was with you. I was with me. I was in every time all at once. And maybe that is the Zen kind of thing where there is no past, there is no future, there is only the moment now, which is eternally present. Yeah. Is that what that means? Do these people literally know events that will happen in their future life? Has it already happened? Is it all one long now? Well, that goes to Einstein's theory, right? About time was that everything was occurring all at once. It's just that we have an inability to perceive it that way. It is so about I just wonder where science sure. crosses over with right. this. The things that we don't quite understand about science yet and about physics. And again, as you keep saying the word quantum, but you're right. This is a very quantum experience. All of this stuff happening at once, that's part of, I believe it's a theory or yeah. a hypothesis yeah. that we can't prove and maybe we never will be able to. But And like you said, Rich, what would be the reason for this? Biologically, if you were to say, oh, well, this is just a function of a dying brain trying to prepare you for It's like, why is it trying to prepare? Why do you need to be prepared if you're just going <laughs> to turn to dust in a yeah, hole? It, well, like it, you said, if your brain just releasing endorphins trying to comfort you in those last moments. Why like, does it want to comfort you, yeah, though? Here's some What's good the scenes. point? You're done. Well, right. it just here's your final file that gets played. <laughs> As you check out. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. Okay, I'll segue just for a second, because this brings up a question and sort of a thought I've had about mediumistic phenomenon. Yeah. So mediums, when they contact the dead, when they go into a trance or whatever they do to speak to the dead, this is what they do. And they come back and they, they say, well, whatever experience I'm having, I'm seeing people and they're talking to me and they're identifying themselves. And the person I'm, you know, the sitter recognizes them as relatives of theirs. And I conduct a communication between these two people, the living one and the dead one. And so when trying to figure out what this is, some people have said, well, maybe you're not really talking to dead people. Maybe you're just getting that information out of the mind of the sitter, or maybe you're just getting that information from some sort of weird band of energy that encircles the earth and contains all information that ever was known or could be known. The Akashic record. Correct. So, and they call it the super ESP theory of mediumship, that you're just tapping into an a pool of information and it's coalescing and that's how you know what the person's dead grandmother would say, which is fascinating except for one thing, not a single medium who has ever done this work has ever described it in those terms. And many of them say, I don't know what it is I'm doing. I don't know how I do it. I just know that I can do it. It's no skin off their nose. They're still going to give you that same information. Okay. Yeah. And yet none of them have ever described it this way. So, 
again, I go back to, you kind of have to listen to the person having the experience and going, you know what? Even if some of them said, you know, I go into a trance and I open a giant book and I read in the book about your grandmother and I read that information to you. And that's how I experience it. That would feed into the band of information theory. Yeah. I've never come across a single medium who has ever described their experience in that way. And so now we're hearing about someone saying, I was given a life review and I was seeing things from other points of view. Mm-hmm. And, and at a certain point, you got to go, you know what? If one person and then 10 people and then 10,000 and then a million people describe their near-death experience in certain terms, maybe those are the terms we should be thinking about. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I wanted to say, you know, based right. on the the section that you just read to us, Rich, that's interesting is, again, the light, the light keeps coming up, which I keep going back to what Josh Lewis said during the Sally House series. He was talking about light and how yeah. many EVPs are talking about light. And I know that not just from his, but as we come across more EVPs, which are electronic voice phenomena, there is a lot of discussion of light. And it's interesting to me in the everything is connected column, mm. how because we didn't pick this topic because it was related to the Sally House or anything that we just covered. We picked it to be a year-end kind of experiential topic. But there is this through line about light and these beings and and then people talking and comparing that light to their idea of God, which going back to what you said, Rich, which I thought was really interesting, is they go and they have the experience. They come back. The minute they try to tell you about it, it's their subjectiveness that's affecting how they impart that information to yeah, you. Yeah, it's the, ineffability. Ineffability. And then the other part of it that's fascinating to me is that there seems to be this idea in this experience, if you believe any of this at all, in this experience, if you're seeing not only how you acted, but how your actions affected other people, and that's going even a few degrees deep and back and forth, and it's a two-way street and all that, then the implication is that when you're on that side of the veil, we are all one collective thing. Yeah. It's all energy. We've said this many times before, but what is light but energy? It's that, but not only that, it's like a machine. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine <laughs> yeah, where all. everything affects every other thing in right. some particular way. And and it's either a closed system, which is not eternal, or it's a very open system in which every possible permutation of every behavior is expressed affects every other person in a slightly different way. Their experience then is slightly different. They go on to affect other people in a slightly different way. And this all goes on eternally without end. But then is that the case of the Adjustment Bureau, where these out-of-body experiences are slight adjustments in people's behavior because they were shown the other side and they are going to adjust their behavior and do a little bit better here or there. Because that's another part, as we'll see here in some of the definitions, that people come out of this and they were like, I'm a different person, man. I do everything differently. I appreciate so much more. It has changed my life and I am changing the lives of everyone around me. Well, I'm going to try. And that's the interesting thing is just because you suddenly feel a lot better about yourself. (laughs) That's true. I don't know if that necessarily means that everything you do is going to make everyone else feel so great. Right. There is still a vast ocean of unknowability when it comes to your behavior and the effect it has on others. You really don't know. Absolutely. And sometimes other people's really bad behavior affects you in a way that makes you go, you know what? I'm not going to be like that. Right. And suddenly you have now taken on a new trajectory that maybe is a good trajectory based on someone else's bad behavior, it gets uh, a little bit inexplicable at a certain point. Absolutely. But I think it's an ebb and flow. I'll just say that at this point. But one of the things 
that another renowned researcher in the field, Kenneth Ring, came up with is this aspect of changed for life. Yeah, everyone has these lists of how they describe these events, and that's one of the first things on his list is that people are changed for life, that the experiences, and Rich has already said this, cut across race, gender, and age. Mm -hmm. Religion is not a factor. Atheists have these experiences too. It doesn't matter if you're a skeptic or an atheist. After the experience, you felt that you were in the presence or had been in the presence of a supreme being and surrounded by love. He also went on to show in his research that drugs and anesthesia are not a factor. In fact, he concluded that in some cases, those detracted from the ability to remember what happened. Right, right. He concluded definitively, and this is a quote from KenRing.org, that NDEs are not hallucinations because hallucinations are rambling, unconnected, often unintelligible, and very widely, whereas NDEs tend to have similar elements of a clear, connected pattern. Or my go-to word, context. Context, exactly. His research has shown that the moment of death is unparalleled peace and comfort, total love and acceptance, and that people who had experienced NDEs had lost their fear of death, becoming more spiritual. And this was interesting because Dr. Sabum said the same thing in his book. Right. Even though he is a devout Christian and he talks about that, he says that people become more spiritual, but not necessarily more involved with organized religion. Another thing Josh Lewis said. Exactly. He said he had a spiritual approach to things. Rather than structured religion. And then this last point that Dr. Ring made, I'm going to read a quote here mm -hmm. from his website on this. Almost all subjects who experienced an NDE found their lives transformed and a change in their attitudes and values and in their inclination to love and to help others. Dr. Ring was convinced that these were absolutely authentic experiences and noted that since returning, many of them had occasion to think about what might have been. And their subsequent lives were powerful testimony to our common ability to live more deeply, more appreciatively, more lovingly, and more spiritually. So psychologist Dr. Kenneth Ring has undertaken a lot of research into NDEs, and his findings generally confirmed what Grayson and Moody had found. And so he goes beyond this and takes his findings to identify the most frequently occurring elements of an NDE. So to recap here, Dr. Ring goes on to describe the paradigmatic near-death experience as involving five stages. Number one, peace. That sense of peace. Two. Wait, wait, can I do the numbers this time? <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll just read them and no, then okay. you do the numbers. Here we How's go. That? All right, okay, here we go. Number one, peace. Number two, body separation. Number three, entering the darkness. Number four, seeing the light. And number five, Entering the light. There we go. Oh, isn't it nice? <laughs> yeah, I just had, uh, do you I feel just more had calm? An, I just had an indie. Right <laughs> did, did you feel? I hope so. Well, I, I need you here, though, actually. So please continue. Most people report having been profoundly changed by their experiences. As you said, describing themselves as better people who are less selfish and materialistic, having more gratitude and joy, and losing their fear of death. And there is a quote from a woman. This is from the Dr. Berkson lecture series. She said, I was completely altered after the incident. I was another person, according to those who lived near me. I was happy. I was laughing, appreciating the little things. And I smiled a lot, so completely different than I was before. And so there's your change of the person for the better. I think we could all agree, whether yeah. you believe in this or not. And that sounds like a better person than what they were before. And in the research, they've gone back to people years and years later and found that 
these after effects continue. So this isn't something where for a few weeks you feel great and then you return to normal. For right. many, many people, the vast majority, these after effects last for years, maybe the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's weird. I'm equating this with my Sally House experience. Like I'm just replacing <laughs> phrases that you're like, so for many, many weeks I feel crappy and then I return to normal. Well, no, it's not. I'm going to live with the crappy feeling for the rest of my life from the Sally House. You think it's so? weird. No, it's weird. I'm fe- like, there's parallels here. Mm-hmm. And what my experience felt like and how this is described is yeah. just strange. Well, that is not necessarily apart from what we're describing here, because Dr. Ring, after analyzing the effects and the after effects of NDEs, found, here's a quote here, they tend to stimulate a life of inward prayer, religious tolerance, and universal faith. Now, NDE survivors become more spiritual, although not necessarily more religious. Ring emphasizes, however, that the return to life after an NDE can be challenging, kind of what you're talking about here, and that the NDE doesn't provide the person who experiences it with answers to all spiritual questions. Rather, quoting here, simply jumpstarts a spiritual quest, which is, my friend, how I see you progressing from here on out, is that you're looking now for more answers and the appropriate questions. Not that you've suddenly, like, glommed onto a certain pathway here, but your mind has been opened. You want to know more answers and you're thinking about this, which is a path unto itself. Hey, look, we just got another email asking us how to start a podcast. Yeah, we're still trying to figure that out ourselves. (laughs) Well, there is a lot of things to consider, you know, concept, gear, and whether or not you can do impressions. Whoa. I don't think that impressions are that important, but (laughs) that one was pretty amazing. Uh, Look, I think step one is figuring out what you're going to talk about and coming up with a good name for your show. Yes, and the next step after that is to hang a shingle up on your own little corner of the internet with a website so people can start finding you. And the easiest way to do that is with Squarespace. A lot of times taking those first steps seem like the hardest ones to take. We spent almost two years just talking about Astonishing Legends before we launched it. Yeah, I'm sure no one will be surprised by that. Well, if there's one thing we do, it's a lot of talking. But for any creative idea, the sooner you put it out there, make it, the sooner you make it real. And that starts the ball rolling. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your cool idea into a new website that showcases your work. You can blog or publish content like we do, or sell products and services of all kinds. There's really no limit to what you can use Squarespace for. And with their beautiful templates made by world-class designers, you can easily create a website that you can be proud to send people to. And if you're setting up a store, they have a powerful e-commerce functionality built right in. You can customize the look and feel of your store, products, and more with just a few simple clicks. I remember before we got onto Squarespace, we used to have to make all of these adjustments for mobile, but all Squarespace templates are optimized for mobile right out of the box, and they have built-in analytics and search engine optimization. Yeah, and no patches or upgrades ever. It's all done for you on the back end. That's why this holiday season, when the year is coming to a close and you're thinking about what you want to do in 2019, we're encouraging you to take that chance on your idea and get out there and make it. Check out squarespace.com legends for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com legends. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. 
When it comes to ancient history and lectures over the Great Courses Plus, I always like to start at the beginning and continue chronologically, and that's what I'm doing with our latest series. Wait, wait. The History of Ancient Egypt. No, you don't do that at all. Oh. You bounce all over the place. <laughs> you just skip to whatever lecture title sounds interesting to you. I never know what topic you're on in a course. Hey. Okay, that's true. And you're right, I should do that especially with history, so I'm starting at the beginning with lecture number two about prehistoric Egypt. Yeah, me too, and since we discovered Gebekli, all this prehistoric history in the cradles of civilization has really fallen into place. Alright, so why don't you tell us everything you learned about prehistoric Egypt? No, 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 I'm not falling for that again. Why don't you tell us everything about prehistoric Egypt? Alright, alright, right. well here goes then. Alright, prehistoric Egypt is Egypt before writing, so literally before history, which means before writing. Writing comes to Egypt around 3200 BC, so after that you're out of the prehistoric times. Historians divide up the prehistoric eras into the Paleolithic, Mesolithic, and Neolithic. Now it's believed Egypt was first populated around 700,000 BC, and it's also believed that these first peoples came up from Africa into the Nile Valley from the south, when the whole area was lush. From that time down to around 70,000 BC, the only tool they had was the stone axe. But they weren't super crude, I mean they had speech and probably controlled fire. So then around 43,000 BC is the next big shift when Homo sapiens, you know, modern humans, replace Neanderthals. So from about 10,000 BC to circa 5,000 BC in the Mesolithic period, people transitioned from hunter-gatherers into farmers and settled down. And then in the Neolithic period from circa 5000 BC to circa 3200 BC is when real civilization begins. This is when we get pottery and politics, as both Upper and Lower Egypt seem to have their own kings, and we also see people being buried in sand pits with their belongings, perhaps the origins of mummification and belief in an afterlife. Wow, uh, I feel ancient after having to hear you explain all that. <laughs> hey, no argument for me about about that, brother. Professor Bob Breyer does it so much better, of course. But now our listeners can go see for themselves and learn about so much other stuff with this special offer. Yep, for a limited time only, you can get a special free month of unlimited access. But to start your free month trial, you gotta sign up through our special URL today. Yep, so head on over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to get your free trial and start excavating. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. This is Keelian, Massachusetts, and when I'm not making creepy polymer marionettes, I'm making acrylic dental appliances while listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so there's a couple more people we'd like to talk about, at least for this part one, that have some very important and interesting ideas regarding general near-death experiences. And we'll talk about a few other researchers here in part two that also have some interesting ideas that are framed within the debate of are they real or not. One, though, is Mario Beauregard, who we spoke about actually at the beginning describing the experience and a definition that's pretty concise. So we talked about him at the beginning of the show. Well, he is a Canadian cognitive neuroscientist who is affiliated with the University of Arizona's psychology department. And he's also affiliated with the Neuroscience Research Center at the University of Montreal. This guy was born in 1962? Yes, he was. He's only a few years older than me, and he's just so much smarter. <laughs> well, yeah, imagine he, that. He paid attention <laughs> in class, let's just say that. Yeah. Even, even people younger than you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He has a website, which is pretty cool. It's in French, because he's French-Canadian. 
Google will translate it. It's just cool stuff. He's got some great ideas here. This will be pulled from uh, his Wikipedia entry here, which is within the near-death experience page. But he is known for arguing that matter is not all that exists, writing that, quote, along with an increasing number of scientists, I believe vehemently that the materialist framework is not science, unquote. And then the description goes on to say, well, for this reason, he contends that the mind and the brain are fundamentally separate entities. Now, folks, pay attention because that is the nut, the crux of the debate between skeptics and believing researchers. The mind versus consciousness existing outside of the body. Wait, but, wait, wait. Yeah. Sorry. Are you saying that the brain and the consciousness are the same thing or those are two separate things as well? No. Oh, from the, are there three things here? Consciousness, no, mind, states. and body? Well, or body and consciousness are the same thing. I think the move here is to let consciousness be the non-material okay. and let brain be the material. And now the argument becomes, is consciousness an artifact of the brain? Right. In other words, do we sort of invent it to facilitate living on Earth? Right. Or is consciousness something separate that can exist outside the body? In other words, non-local consciousness. Yes. Okay. Obviously, we're conscious right now. Most of us, I'm going to have conscious. But we use consciousness every day to operate our bodies and do the things we want to do. Is that just a product of the chunk of gray matter in your head? Or once that dies, that chunk of gray matter, and you begin a moldering, can that consciousness then leave, or does it already exist outside the body? And that'll be an right. interesting thing that we're going to talk about. Where does it reside? And are we just radios yeah. that pull in a chunk of consciousness out of the ethers or out of whatever dimension it exists in naturally and physicalize it for a while until we die, and then it goes back to wherever it exists before it inhabited us. Exactly, and that's kind of the reason for the term NDE to be used and adopted by researchers to get away from those other ideas like astral self, which is, that's what it's talking about. Well, They're, yeah. Yeah, because it's a little way out for some people to kind of grasp. So let's just say you're having an experience, and let's start there, then work our way up or out, depending on if you think this is how way out this is. While Beauregard was working at the University of Montreal, he and his graduate student, Vincent Paquette, conducted a study using fMRI to examine the brains of nuns reliving mystical experiences. That sounds like something that's also right up Rich's alley, study-wise. But they're not having mystical experiences. They're thinking about ones that they had had. I believe so, yes. They're reliving uh, them. They're remembering Yeah, them. I was going to say, because how, do you, how, how do you get, there's some logistics here, how do you get the nun into the MRI right when she's having the mystical experience? Right. Well, sometimes... Researchers believe that that can be triggered okay. mechanically or yes. artificially, but also that's a more, as they would say, more naturally, right? not spiritually. Well, they found that there was no single spot involved in mediating these experiences, but that instead multiple brain regions and systems were involved. So that'll be a little different when we go to talk about sparking NDEs electromechanically or electromagnetically. Uh, attempting to. Yes. Attempting. Uh, he also studied the brain activity of people who were reliving near-death experiences that they previously had. And he said that this research seems to indicate that these experiences have, quote, triggered something at a neural level in the brain. So was he saying that he was getting similar readings? I think, of people yeah. remembering a mystical experience and remembering a near-death experience. Right. Just reliving it triggers... Right. Well, that's what they okay. say about PTSD. Your brain kind of relives it. That's why it's so damaging and uh, inhibiting to a lot of people, reliving these horrible experiences, because your brain physiology reacts the same way. 
you're in the same amount of terror, panic, and all that. Right. So I think what he's saying here is that people who are reliving, thinking about these near-death experiences, it kind of indicates that there was something that has been triggered at the neural level. It's not just a memory of like, I went yesterday to McDonald's and the, it was delicious and I'm remembering that. There's well, something you know, that gets triggered deep down below. And I would love to read the full report. What yeah. I hope he did was also put people in the fMRI and say, all right, now think about what you think a near-death experience would feel like. Right. And just yeah, have them and, imagine a near-death experience and see if that triggers the same thing or not at all. Yeah, exactly. Imagine a mystical experience because right. they actually did that in studying people who had been abducted. Yeah, the, uh, alien yeah. abductees. And they spoke to people who had not claimed that they had had an alien abduction experience, but they said, well, imagine one and describe it to me. Mm -hmm. And they were completely unlike people who had actually had what they believed was an actual abduction experience. Yeah, right. People just making things up never hit on any of the points that the people okay. who had experiences marked on repeatedly. So Beauregard has also written a few books, including uh, one titled The Spiritual Brain, A Neuroscientist's Case for the Existence of the Soul, which he also co-authored with Denise O'Leary. There's another book titled Brain Wars, The Scientific Battle Over the Existence of the Mind and the Proof That Will Change the Way We Live Our Lives. And what's interesting about this book written in 2012 is that he contends that the mind and brain are fundamentally distinct from one another. And this is coming from Wikipedia again. Among the lines of evidence he cites to support this view are the effects that one's thoughts and beliefs can have on the course of diseases like cancer and Parkinson's. Disease. Mind and the no. brain are just different. So oh, yeah, is the mind like the soul? The yeah, that's yeah, a consciousness. Same, yeah. That's kind of what we're talking about before. We're, yeah. A lot of words are getting interchanged here. And I just well, no, no, there's, oh, oh yeah, yeah, just to Brain is always the physical yes. goo in your head. The cauliflower. The cauliflower. Yeah, okay. Right, it's not actually you. And, and the Buddhists will say, you know, like Eckhart Tolle will say that your brain basically is to just achieve yeah. daily goals. Yes. How do I get the car to run to go to the grocery store? How do I get finished recording the podcast? Exactly. And that's what you employ. But your actual consciousness, who you are as an entity, you know, Scott will know what that means from our last experience. You exist somewhere outside of a corporeal body or chunk of gray matter. Whereas the skeptics would say, it's electrochemical, it just resides in the brain. Once you die, lights off, that's it. Doesn't go anywhere. Like yeah. when you close your laptop, the internet ceases to exist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's a metaphor everyone There you follow. go. Well, uh, you know what? Scott and I had this discussion a few days ago about a certain movie. Well, I'm not going to give it away because he gets mad. But the idea is that a certain form of artificial intelligence, when it reaches a certain level... AI, does it become sentient? And where does it reside? Does it reside on a hard drive? Or can it leave a network? So that's similar to what we're talking about here. So here's one last person in part one that we want to talk about. It's a NDE researcher, very well noted, PMH Atwater. And she has her own kind of, a, I guess, categorization for NDEs, and they go into four types. And one interesting thought about her is that she contends that the type of NDE, each type that she's going to categorize here, comes to the kinds of people who are ready for it and need it. So you get the kind you are supposed to get and are ready for. So the first one is interesting. It's called the initial experience, meaning that it's just kind of the basic, bland 
nuts and bolts experience. She also calls it kind of a non-experience because it's very simple, usually just involving the darkness or there's a voice there in the darkness. So basically you don't get all the other fireworks. You just get darkness, but you get some kind of message maybe, like you said, a voice where you shouldn't be hearing anything. So it's a very stripped down experience. That's the initial experience. The second one is the hell-like unpleasant experience. Now she claims that 15% of the adults she surveyed had these types of experiences. And these can involve punishment or some kind of void or space that was unpleasant and threatening. And she goes on to write that usually these scenarios are usually experienced by, quote, those who seem to have deeply repressed guilt, fear, or anger, or those who expect some kind of punishment after death. I disagree. All right, let's hear it. Personally, Everyone has repressed guilt, fear, and anger. Well, you a lot, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, more than, more so than most people, but... It's very ahead. easy to say that the people who have negative NDEs, and we'll talk about those later, right. have a specific psychological profile that sets them up for it, but... I think that's a tough one. I think well, I, 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 th I think this is a theory that doesn't have a lot to back it up. You know what? You have to realize, too, these are the people that she studied in her survey. So, you know, you can't talk to everybody. I think it's also a generalization. So that 15% is a wide swath number. Well, also, there. I mean, are you going to ask people who don't have a negative NDE if they have repressed guilt right. or fear? Yeah, no. there's a whole lot more. I, You know, I agree with you there, Rich. And the other thing that's interesting, too, is like if you look at Dr. Sabum's uh, research, because he did a study he called the Atlanta study, he talked to 50 people and only two of them had negative experiences. So that's not 15%. And then he cites other people, uh, some other folks that worked for 10 years to get 50 cases together, mm -hmm. and only one of those people had a negative experience. Well, and by the way, I'm not questioning the existence of the unpleasant NDE. No, I no, know no, they no, exist, sure. but yeah. I think we have to be really careful about saying, well, look at who had them. Right, right. She, right. she said usually. Also, you can debate this with her because she's on Twitter, and she's pretty active. I'm and jump I just right on Twitter. Well, there you <laughs> <laughs> See what she thinks of Titan profile. Then she has two more types. Yeah, the, the third would be the pleasant experience. That's kind of what people describe as being like heaven. And 47% of the adults that she studied relate this kind of experience or scenario. So these can involve the typical things here that you would think of, the loving you know, reunions with your family, affirmation, inspiration, religious figures that are comforting and like reassuring. The, like the story we shared earlier. Exactly. So here's a quote that's in the lecture that we talked about earlier that we're pulling a lot of this from. The quote from her is, these are experienced, quote, by those who most need to know how loved they are and how important life is. I disagree. That, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm disagreeing right. too. Okay. I mean, I, I can see these All points right. of view. Who but... doesn't need to know how much they're loved? Who doesn't need to know how important uh, life is? Well, these are I, such I, odd characterizations of, of entire groups of people when yeah. this is something that affects so many people. You had so this because you need it. So many different points of view and inner psychologies, it'd be impossible to assess who needs most uh, to know how loved they are. That's such a strange it, place. Yeah, to how do you assess well, that that someone way, needs to know that? PMH Atwater. <laughs> I, I, I mean, love and, that you're, you, know, you're, you both are, are going off. They, of there's got to be a reason she's saying this, but it seems like a, just an odd place to land. I don't know what you would have to have at hand to back up these statements. Well, it feels very Freudian. Just like, well, I'm going to tell you the things you don't know about yourself. You had this because you need to know how loved you are. And it's well, like, we well, I'm, I'm going to fill out a, a thing that says... I need to know how loved I am. 
is that affecting the NDE I'm well, having? And by the way, I mean, no question that a human being brings something into that experience. Sure. I, th I, I think there, and that's part of what we've talked about in the past about the co-creation. People co-create many of their psychic experiences, the near-death experience, an alien abduction experience, an encounter with any sort of spiritual being, a ghost encounter. I would say even your EVP. Mm -hmm experience was somewhat co-created by you and where you were in your life and, and what was I going on. I completely agree that it well, was related right. to me. Okay. But, but I wouldn't say you got what seemed like an evil demonic EVP because you got a problem, Scott. Yeah, I you also would not say I went in there. Guilt yeah, and anger. Exactly. And I wouldn't say that I went in there wanting that to happen or that I needed it to happen. Right. But backing up here, this goes to her overall statement that we mentioned before this section here. One, you do have to know what survey questions she asked. Of course. You know right. what I'm saying? Like, the, as yeah. we talked about with other studies. Yeah, and we're taking on, this out of context. Yeah, it depends on yeah. how it's framed. It's all like, well, did you feel loved? Like, well, 40% of the adults who took the survey said, yeah, I kind of needed to know that. You know what? I know a lot of people who don't give a crap about how people feel about them or if they're loved or not. But her point here, I think that kind of goes back to the overarching statement here is that the NDE, the type of NDE, each one of these types comes to the person who is receiving of it and are needing of that. And so like with Scott's case, yeah, you could say he wasn't looking for that. Did he need it? I don't know. What I can say is for our show, it's put us on an evolution we didn't plan. And he's opened up quite a bit as a human being since then. But that's a post-reaction, not, yeah. not, yeah, not, 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 not a given yeah. state. No, no, I'm not saying that, like I said, you didn't go in looking for that. But is it something in the grand scheme of... Scott, is that something that needed to happen to you? Even if it was, I don't think you could assess that by asking me a bunch of questions before I went into the Sally house. Not in this way. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, not in this way. My point here, though, is that you need to know what questions were asked and how that was framed, the survey, because that makes all the difference. You know what I'm saying? I, I agree. I guess yeah. it, it feels a little bit like if you're doing a comparison, and I totally believe in real psychics, but I also believe that there are charlatans. Sure. And there's people that do cold reading. And, and this feels a little bit like... You know, is there anyone here who knows somebody who had a first name starting with a J? Because you're kind of saying, well, you had an unpleasant-like experience. Tell me all about yourself. Well, you know, I feel guilty. Well, that, well that's, that's what I I'm saying. I feel guilty. That's... Aha! That's why you had the unpleasant experience. Well, so, well yeah, and... but you can't say that until you know what the questions are. So Which not we, knowing... I wish we did. Well, like I said, she's got work she can go study, and you can probably right. ask her directly what her basis was. Because that, again, I used to work for a company that did major nationwide surveys, and I know how they tweak them. Because they will, because guess what? You can tweak the survey questions to get the answers and the data you want. Of course. I think Maurice Rawlings is a better example of how, for a researcher, a framework that you're approaching the phenomenon from will influence not only the way you ask questions, but the conclusions you draw and then the recommendations you give afterwards. Because Well, it's just like a false confession when the police lead you with the questions and then the next thing you know, you're saying that you did something you didn't do. That can happen in any scenario, including a research scenario. Right. Look, people who have a distressing near-death experience often are seeking an answer as to why they had one of the bad ones. Everyone else had a good one. Why did I have a bad one? Does that mean I'm a bad person? And it puts you in a vulnerable it state. It must be horrible. I'm sure it's terrible. I can't imagine. I mean, just as much as the good near-death experience seems so desirable, the bad ones seem like they would burden you so much with uh, self-questioning yeah. that you'd be like, well, again, is it my fault? Did I do something? 
And then on the other hand, you would want possibly somebody like Maurice Rawlings coming to you and saying, well, what it means is you need to convert and begin living your life differently, either spiritually or religiously, well, you have to, to fight your way out of that hole. You might just briefly have to tell our listeners who he is. He was, and, and again, this is just stating a fact, he's right. an evangelical yes. and a near-death experience researcher. Right. And so the people that he spoke to, that's the framework he was coming from. That's how he was hearing these experiences. Many of the people that he was speaking to may have also been evangelicals or people with a deep religious background one way or another. And that was a language through which they could understand the experience. And also it provided a way to address the problem. What you're saying that does make sense to me here and, and Forrest, this is kind of what I'm saying too, is like, if you go and you have the hellish, unpleasant near-death experience, I would venture to say, just like the positive ones that we've already discussed and we've researched, and we know that these people, their lives are completely changed, that the persons that have the negative ones, their lives are completely changed too. So whatever answers to any survey questions they're going to make are going to be radically different from what they would have said before it happened. However, conversely, the only way to combat that would be to survey like a million people before they had it, and then talk to the well, ones who had one right, yeah. and find yeah. out if they felt guilty before it happened. Well, that's impossible to know. What they thought of beforehand and what they felt afterwards, and again, it's how the questions are, are framed. But like people who have the negative experience, you have to separate the idea of did they deserve that experience or did the experience, which was awful, have a positive benefit afterwards? We don't know if they deserved it or not. What I would contend is that people who have a, a bad experience probably deep down need to know what they need to work on, okay? I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying these so are bad people. So you think there's no possibility that a person who has a, a bad NDE... Could be a mistake. Okay. Could be a mistake because we well, have a story like that, that. You're not leaving that door No, what open. I'm saying is that, look, we all have things to work on. But Kenneth Ring, the researcher, which we talked about, his conclusion was that people don't necessarily have a religious epiphany afterwards. They become more spiritual, looking inward. That's different than having like, I got religion, because it's all about assessing yourself. It's like, what am I doing wrong here? And, and guess what? It's a rude wake-up call. Um, there was a brilliant television show I created <laughs> uh, called Miracles that, that yes. has to do with A, the existence of phenomenon, right. and then B, the troubling human habit of immediately trying to assign a moral quality to right. a phenomenon. So... You have a good near-death experience, it affects you one way. You have a bad near-death experience, it affects you another way. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, those are not absolutes. A right. lot of people say, hey, after my near-death experience, I became a much better person. A lot of people According do say According to who? You might become a self-righteous ass <laughs> and become extremely annoying to everyone who's around you. Right. But you feel different. I totally respect that. But for someone to say, I am now a better person than I was... There may be a scale they're using to judge that. I may have a different scale. Yeah, you have to go by that yourself anyway, because again, there's a lot of people who are jerky and don't really realize it. They think they're fine. That's what near-death experience. <laughs> That's what research. Forrest thinks about me. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, he absolutely no idea the look, way he acts. Uh, you, look, you, you go on the uh, the near-death experience research foundation website. And you will find dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of really beautiful, wonderful, love and God-filled near-death experiences that were experienced by people attempting suicide. Right. Now, there will be people in our listening audience who will say, well, now, wait a second. Suicide is one of the worst things you can do, according to almost all world religions. That is the big no-no. 
so why do these people have great news? Shouldn't these people, having attempted suicide, find themselves in a hellish realm where they are told, we'll send you back, but you better not do this again? Yeah. yeah I think we are way too early in our study of this. When I say we, and I'm not talking about the three of us, I'm talking about <laughs> humanity in general, right. to begin assigning moral qualities to the people who have the various kinds of experiences. Everyone is struggling with these things and trying to figure out what they are and make sense of them. And I appreciate that if someone has a bad near-death experience that they struggle with any level of self-examination, that's fine. And yet, don't forget, there are people who have near-death experiences that start out bad and then become good. Right. And there are people who have three or four near-death experiences over the course of a long life, some good, some bad. It's really hard to start labeling people. It's like every paranormal thing we talk about. It boils down to the personal experience. It's unchartable it. yeah. at some point. And you, to your point, Kenneth Ring, uh, here, and this is all on the, uh, the wiki page for near-death experiences, argues that attempted suicides do not lead more often to unpleasant NDEs than unintended near-death situations. Right. Overall, what the person experiences, again, it's that rude wake-up call. And... Most, I would say, the research would point to, from what I've gathered here, is that it is a beneficial thing overall. Even if it was horrible and unpleasant, it's like, yeah, I remember some things I could work on. And, th and that's the thing. Yeah, people, okay. The people that come out of it feeling changed. And here's something that uh, Kenneth Ring also says. The person experiencing the NDE doesn't necessarily get a bunch of answers to spiritual questions. You don't see a glimpse and it's like, oh, I got it all worked out now. I just got to do this. I got to donate more and I got to work with charity and all that. Rather, what he says is, quote, simply jumpstarts a spiritual quest, which is just, like he said, the life examined and a lot of self-examination. And we can all use a little bit of that, pretty much all of us. So that, I think, wraps up that. And whether you believe it or not, or what these categories are or how she came up with them, they are generalizations and you're trying to define something that's pretty nebulous to begin with. Well, just to be fair to her before we move on from this, we did not mention her the fourth category from her, which was the transcendent experience, which she says 18% of adults experienced. These involve, quote, alternate realities and otherworldly scenes, often with revelations of greater truths, end quote. So these types of experiences are usually lacking in personal content, like relatives or a life review, and are more impersonal experiences of a collective universality. Right, and that's from the lecture series. But what they're talking about there is those are the ones that are kind of allegorical, I think, and symbolic. It's a lot less personal to you. You're seeing the greater universal truths or glimpsing something of that. But basically to conclude her, you know, I guess the summation of her research is that the type of NDE that a person experiences was something either, again, tailored for them by some unseen force, or if you believe that they are all generated in the brain, it's something your own brain needed to work on. She's saying, yeah, there are transcendent ones, but she's not really saying here, at least in this compiling of all of her work down into a paragraph, that it is something that inside or outside of you. So regardless of that, what she's saying is that it seemed to be tailored to the person and, the, and their story, depending on her questions or what she asked. Which all came after the experiences. Yeah, to no, be fair. no, I think she tried to kill people after they fill out the survey. Well, no, but and my, like, how'd you feel? My point is that it, they're yeah, all, all those people have been affected by the experience that they already had. Of course. Right. But that's another point we're going to get to before. It's like, it's the definition of this experience. It's not actually death. It's near death. Yeah. But maybe that's not totally concrete. 
All right, so we've wrapped up part one here. In part two, we're going to come back and talk about a little bit of the more extreme and unusual cases of near-death experiences, not just the, I, you know, I died, I saw Jesus, yeah. I went into a light. We're going to get into the ones, more specific about the ones that are negative, and then also more specific about ones that seem to provide some kind of tangible proof that the person was, in fact, outside their body and returned because they came back with either some kind of information or they were able to interact with the living during the time that they were outside of their dead body. I believe the word you're looking for is veridical. Veridical, <laughs> yes. Right, yes. The new word I'm learning. The truth. Yes. Truthiness. And we're going to look at all the arguments that are skeptical of all of this. Yes. And kind of see the argument here because it is not all just one-sided. It has not been decided by everybody for everyone. Right. So let's go to this story. This is one of my favorite stories we came across. This is from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, which we brought up earlier. Their website is nderf.org. And this particular story was posted just this past October on their website, although it's something that took place in the 70s. And it was submitted by someone who goes by Sandra. I'm not sure that's her real name, but here's the summary of the story, which I think you guys are going to enjoy. Sandra went swimming when she was very young in 1975 or 76, and while she was in the pool, she drowned. She got too far away from the side of the pool and couldn't breathe and was unconscious, but still floating in the pool. She was there with her adult cousin, but he had an intellectual disability, and he was standing there kind of watching her because the last thing that she had said was, I'm going to do a trick. And so he was waiting for the trick to happen. Oh my God. But she had drowned, and so she's out there in the middle of the pool, and then she said that she came out of her body and that she had a pronounced feeling of freedom. She looked up at the sky and she knew she could go anywhere, but then she also realized that she needed help. So now she's floating above the ground and she starts floating around looking for an adult to get help from besides her cousin and she can't find anyone. So she then goes into the ground floor of what she describes as the main house. I take it that she might've been kind of wealthy because she's like a main house and, and you'll see why as the story continues. She goes into the main house and her family has a chef or a cook. And he is apparently asleep in a small room that he has presumably near the kitchen. She floats into the room. He's the only guy she can find. And she's floating in the room now. Her body is in the pool. And she's floating up against the wall at the foot of his bed. And she said she went to scream as loud as she possibly could to try and wake him up. And he instantly jumped out of the bed and ran out of his room. And she said, quote, I screamed for him in a panic, but the words that came out, it was energy, end quote. He ran out of his room and sat down at the threshold to the back door of the house, overwhelmed with whatever had awoken him because he clearly still didn't quite understand what made him wake up. And she's floating next to him, trying to figure out still how to get his attention further. And he looks up and he sees some clothes hanging on some rebar. And he knew then that somebody must be in the pool. Rebar is, for those of you who don't know, it's a metal rod like construction material that you see they use when they pour concrete to make it stronger. So something was under construction or was unfinished. So she, he saw the clothes and he knew somebody was in the pool. So then he raced over and he saw her floating in the pool. Now she doesn't say this, but presumably if he works for the family and she knows him, they probably have a pretty close relationship. So I'm sure he immediately freaked out. But she said at that point, he was trying to reach out to her. Maybe he couldn't swim, she didn't say, but he didn't jump in like they do in the movies. You always jump in when the person's drowning. But I guess he was trying to reach over to her and she said she went back into her body and I guess regained consciousness at that moment and then reached out to him who was reaching out to her and he pulled her out of the pool and lifted her up out of it. This is a direct quote from her account. 
I threw my hand up to him and he was able to grab my arm. He pulled me out of the pool. I didn't cry, cough, throw up, or speak for the rest of the day. I only moved from the spot that I was last put in if I was led by someone to a new spot. I was in a state of total peace like I've never known before that moment and never known since. I remember every detail of that moment to this day, even though I cannot remember anything else before or after that moment with that kind of detail. I remember the cook leading me back towards the main house and calling to several other people to join him so he could explain what just happened. He said he had just fallen asleep when suddenly he felt like the room exploded and he jumped out of bed so shaken that he barely made it to the threshold of the door before he had to sit down. As he was trying to figure out what had just happened, that's when he saw the clothes hanging on the rebar that was still exposed near the swimming pool. He said he knew I was in the pool and went running to find me. He said, as tears ran down his cheeks, quote, she wasn't moving, I thought she was gone. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on near-death experiences with special guest Rich Haddam. Tune in next week for our last show of the year when Rich will be back and we'll get into the weeds on this subject. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Jenna. Hi, I'm Keely. And finally, my name, Margaret Emma, is two separate words. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.